0: Obviously, the culture has changed. Yeah. Um, you know, some people knew, well, knew enough not to do this years ago, but, you know, chefs don't go out and get drunk with their staff mm-hmm. um, or or do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the staff, you know, in this book I just did, I, I have a, a moment where the the team in the restaurant I write about comes into work uh, on the first day of their work week, which was a Tuesday. And I re- I say, like, this is not... The old generation of chefs. You know, they all look fresh. You know, like years ago, you know, this, if you came into a restaurant on the first day of the week, you know, people were coming in hungover. They look like crap. You know, they're telling these crazy weekend stories. You know, these people look completely wholesome. You know, they, they have water bottles. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they have a skip in their, they look fresh as a daisy, all of them every, to a person, right?
1: Yeah. That, it, so like... that's
0: different. Uh, for, you know, for better or for worse. Press the
1: button. Yes.
0: Come on. Wow. We've already fucked it up. It's crazy.
1: That's right.
2: Uh, we're pros around here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 50 cameras, all kinds of shit happening. It's weird because it's daytime. I'm not totally sure what to do with myself. Welcome to a brand spanking new episode of Bang Gong Podcast. I am the producer formerly known as Nick Jimenez, and I am joined as usual by 8th grade basketball MVP, award-winning Elvis impersonating Santa Claus, and so alleged true. chef Michael Beltran. All true stuff. <laughs> we are joined by a very special guest, podcaster, author, And we'll find out all kinds of other stuff like, uh, what was it, an ice cream place around here? Yeah. One-time ice cream place. Assistant manager. Or or assistant manager. Love this. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Friedman. He is here uh, promoting his brand new book, The Dish, uh, which I placed very... Sneakily next to you on the booth, in case you want to. I didn't
0: even notice that. In case you want to refer to it over there. My first words on the show are me talking about how unobservant I am. It's (laughs) kind of like that (laughs) Adam Sandler movie. Thank you for that.
2: And so we're going to take a little beat here because this conversation will also be published via your podcast, Andrew Talks to Chefs, which people should go and listen to. So we'll take a breath. (sighs) And now I'm stepping all the way out. I have nothing to do with this. This is just between the two of you. Man, I am pumped.
3: I have to say that um, in the world of like food, conversations, uh, understanding chefs, um, people who actually like take time to understand what food really means, I mean, uh, there's very few and you're like at the top of that totem pole. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, so the fact that you're sitting at our table and you wanted to do this, I'm incredibly honored, pumped, and also shocked
0: shocked <laughs> i've been wanting to sit with you for i mean we had a we had the plague yeah so that messed us up but we st- we've been messaging each other since you start since definitely since you started the show yeah um and uh you know it, it kind of came up in the in nick's intro but um you know I'm, i i was born in new york i was in florida though in miami uh i went to high school down the street here wild at ransom everglades and uh but I was here from ages 2 to 17. Wow. So, um, you know, I've been aware of you forever. And, nice. uh, you know, I'm honored to be sitting here with you. So,
3: yeah, it's it's um, well, I just because I always I'm shocked when people want to do this, because the way that me and Nick started this and some of the talking about the plague, like all the ups and downs and weird like uh, turns this podcast has taken. And it's just it's cool. I'm
0: I'm incredibly honored. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It was some, I mean, thank you. There's something I wanted to do.
3: So first of all, let's talk about you assistant managing the ice cream place that's down the street from here.
0: <laughs> so I went to high school. We're, we're on Main Highway here yeah. in, in Coconut Grove, uh, Florida. Um, I'm getting reacquainted. I haven't been here in like probably four years. Uh, I just drove here from downtown Miami and it was all starting to come back to me in the back of the Uber. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to turn on McDonald's. Right. We're going to turn on Bayshore Drive. We're going to turn on whatever it is, McFarland, yeah. you know, it all came back. But I went to high school down the street, and we're at the corner of Main Highway and Fuller. Mm-hmm. And when the driver was trying to, you, it's all pedestrian now, turn on to Fuller, I went, oh, Chuggs is on the corner of Fuller. And I was wondering if it was going to be the same space, because right across Fuller Street from where we are sitting, um, older listeners will remember there used to be a chain of ice cream stores called Steve's Ice Cream. And we did what they called mixins by hand. It was kind of like a precursor to... Uh, Cold coldstone Cold Stone. I was about to say it sounds yeah. like Cold Stone. Yes. You know, you, it was like Benihana of ice cream. Like you'd right. slam the ice cream down, you'd put the fillings in it, and then you'd work it over and put it in the cup, right? right. And, and I was an assistant manager. I had a key to the store. At how old? <laughs> I think 16. Man, it's crazy. I know I could drive myself to work. Oh, that's good. But that was a relatively new thing. So I, I must have been 16. But that... You know, you were just talking before how you used to have a line down the block. Yeah. Uh, on, on like, Friday, Saturday night, Coconut Grove, at least when I was growing up, mm-hmm. that's where you went.
3: Yeah, same. it was the same. When I, if, when I was growing up, it was, like, Thursday, Friday. It was just, like, a really, like, interesting mix of humans, for sure, because this was, like, pre-Winwood and, like, downtown. You still didn't really go there. And Brickle was, like, not what it is now. So, right. like, the Grove just had, like, all of Miami sends to
0: the growth. Yeah, major so was, police presence. <laughs> major. Yeah, no, you're Friday right. Friday and Saturday, and they had paddy wagons standing by. Well, I mean, that's back when Fat
3: Tuesdays was here, and what was Oh Wet Willies and Fat Tuesdays. Senior
0: Frogs was that still? Senior Frogs when you were here? was
3: down. Uh, now where that um, uh, they built a building there, but it was next to where Green because Green Street's been there for 35 yes. years. Yes, um, so next to that there was a building. That's where Senior Frogs was. And I remember they used to let underage people in. I don't know how I know that, but I do know that. Um, And, yeah, I mean, the Grove is just... its What I say all the time is that this is one of the most historic neighborhoods in Miami, and it's also the last, like, walking city in Miami. Like, you have no problems walking around here. Like, downtown is somewhat getting there, I think, slowly but surely, back to that point. Um, But, I mean, the Grove, you just park, and you spend literally all day here. And also, like... And not, I don't want to poo-poo anyone, but like back like when Scotty's was there, I mean, to me, it was like my my favorite place on the planet, Scotty's. And, you know, sadly, it's not there anymore, but just stuff like that, like the Grove was just like, had like trickles of that everywhere, you know. It's a little different now, Um, better or worse, whatever, however you want to think about it. But the Grove is still awesome. I love it here.
0: Yeah, and what people don't know... Who visit because all you really do is these main thoroughfares, right? Mm -hmm. You do main highway, you go to Cocoa Walk and all that. But the residential areas just off of here, it looks exactly the same way it looked, I mean, when I was growing up, but probably long before that, you know. And it feels very much like, um, you know, it almost has like a Hollywood Hills kind of feeling, you Mm -hmm. know, it's all kind of overgrown and lush and it's old Spanish style houses. Yeah. And um, it's really, you know, a good chunk of, uh, geography that's, uh, completely residential, you mm-hmm. know? And it's, I, f- I, have always, I had friends there when I was growing up and I always found that area very sort of like a, like kind of an area out of time, yeah. you know?
3: And it's still like, it's still exactly the same. I know. I mean, it has, I mean, there's nowhere to build anything else there unless you knock it down and build it back up, which they're not a huge fan of. But like when you drive through there, the homes are trapped in time. For sure. I mean, there's some parts of Miami that are like that, but the Grove by far is the, the one that has stayed like that. I think it'll stay like that for a very long time. So this is amazing. I, how many chefs have you actually spoken to, written about? And I was actually like um, reading a thing uh, a couple of days ago, and I never really realized uh, how you were part of writing the, the Gotham cookbook. That was my big break. And that was like that. I remember as a a young cook, I read that book and I have poured through that book so many times. I mean, Portale is like uh, just uh, for me, I I loved. And even now, like I still refer back to it all the time. And it's one of those things to me. It's one of the most legendary cookbooks, at least that I have in my collection, for sure. Um, I don't know, like. So when was like, when did this first start for me? Yeah.
0: Uh, well, the writing started, uh, the, the writing about chefs and food started with that book. So that was, it's really weird. I always forget. I believe the book, it, the book was either published in 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 97 cause I was working on it in 96. Yeah. And, um, that was, I had no, I was, I was trying to be a screenwriter Mm -hmm. and I had a a day job at a PR firm that specialized in restaurants. And one of my clients was Alfred Portale, who at the time was the chef of Gotham Barn Grill, which is, it's still there. It's a a new owner now and Alfred's not affiliated with it, but he was there for, you know, 30 some years. And one of the really important new American cuisine restaurants of the eighties And into the 90s for sure Mm -hmm. super influential Um, and Alfred knew that I was a writer in my off hours and it's a longer story than this but he ended up asking me to collaborate on that book with him and honestly I just thought it'd be something to do it'd be a one-time thing and and you know I think you're of the generation where for a time if I would go to a chef's office to interview them like every chef had that book this
2: episode of pan podcast is brought to you by perla specialty roasters perla produces an award-winning coffee portfolio they are a four-time good food award finalist and two-time winner perla uses coffee directly sourced from around the world using relationships on the farm level They view their coffee portfolio as a way for coffee partners like Ariad Hospitality Group to further enhance their guest experience.
3: I really love what their brand represents from a local standpoint. They're uh, very immersed in the community, and they've been very supportive uh, of all of our places even before we used to serve Perla. So uh, when we decided to partner with them and make them our coffee provider across the board, they've been great to work with.
2: With such intention placed on the food and bar program... Shouldn't your restaurant have the same attention to detail? Their espresso fino blend was specifically designed to pair great with milk, making it amazing for latte or cortadito. Perla's biggest competition is the large, soulless, multinational roasting operations. You like that soulless? (laughs) so good. It's like the final boss.
3: (laughs) You have to beat the soulless the big multinational, multinational fucking Folgers roasting, monster or something. <laughs> roasting operations. It's like a Maxwell House <laughs> thing walking up to you. It's good.
2: They can also solve equipment needs with sales, leasing, and service operations available at their disposal. With lightning-fast order fulfillment, orders roast and ship the same day. Sometimes Chug's Diner gets its order the same day the coffee was roasted i can uh, 100 percent
3: say that that's actually happened more than once from a customer standpoint customer service standpoint they're pretty incredible to work with for sure
2: with initial and ongoing staff training to make sure that their coffee is tasting on point yeah
3: i think uh, there's two points there that are incredibly true just because i've lived them it's like the when it comes to equipment issues uh how willing they are to help us in the maintenance uh standpoint of of equipment because coffee equipment unless you're you have years and years of knowledge you have no idea how to even start and then the ongoing staff training uh you know it's something that they talk about with us several times whether they want to come in and do training us on how to make the coffee or just education on the coffee um they're really they've been really great
2: to get all of your coffee situation on point drinkperla.com that's drink p-e-r-l-a dot com drinkperla.com to get your coffee situation on point and move away from those soulless operations maxwell house big boss
1: do 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 do
0: you know not so much now but that's normal uh but um at that time for several years and it had gold cover so i could always spot it on people's bookshelves and like everybody i mean that had everything to do with alfred and very little to do with me to be honest because alfred was such a big figure at that time Mm -hmm. um but, you know, we won the one of the two big cookbook awards. We were nominated for a Beard Award. Um, we got great reviews. And I thought, you know, this isn't the kind of writing I want to do. But, you know, maybe it's a way to not put on a suit and tie and have to be somewhere at 9 a.m. every day. Oh, and Amen to that. Manage employees. And, mm. you know, that's how I started. Um, but that's the first thing I ever got paid money for as a writer. Wow. As a writer. Um, yeah. And... Like I say, I didn't know it was at the time, but that ended up being my that was the, the big break for me. And then around the time of the release and those awards and everything, I um, I left my day job and I started looking for other projects, you know, and that was 25 years and 30 something books ago.
1: Wow.
0: Um, a lot of collaborations. I've been doing collaborations plus my own stuff. I started doing my own stuff. Fourteen years ago, mm-hmm. you know, finally, um, uh, kind of gave up the screenwriting dream and went all in on on the chef thing. Uh,
3: so, what what got you to switch over to just want to do your own stuff? Was there like a point that you were uh, like,
0: oh, in terms of the books? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's actually a, there was a moment. So I I I refer to myself not as a food writer but as a chef writer. Um, I love that. Thank you. Because I really don't. Um, you know i've written a lot of cookbooks but i haven't written a recipe in over a decade now yeah um i still get a lot of calls from young people looking for advice because i did so many of them and they're still out there um but i started moving into helping people you know with memoirs and things like that and um i did a book a while back called don't try this at home i collaborated with an agent by the name of kim witherspoon and um it was Kitchen Disaster Stories from famous chefs.
3: Love that. And I got one of those.
0: <laughs> I ghosted I ghosted uh 28 out of the 40 stories in the book and I had a really I don't want to say easy, but I didn't need the chefs to like explain terminology to me. I didn't right. need them to you know, I could fill in context, you know? And I that was I started realizing that I had attained a certain amount of knowledge of the life, never having worked in a kitchen myself. Mm. And then I wrote a book called Knives at Dawn, which was about the book who's door competition. And I trailed the American candidate who's now very successful on his own, Tim Hollingsworth, who has the restaurant Otium in, yeah, in Los Angeles. He's, he's pretty killing it. Yeah. So Timmy was the, the protagonist of that book. At the time he was a sous chef and he was developing dishes, um, for competition. And there again, I was sort of watching him kind of like a Polaroid picture kind of evolve in front of me. Mm. Um, and then the moment happened, which was uh, there's a chef named Gavin Kaysen who used to be oh, in yeah. New York. He's now back home in also Minneapolis. Legend. He's like a mogul. He's got like,
3: he, he worked for Danielle, right? Oh, for years. Yeah. 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 yeah,
0: yeah. And uh, also part of the Bocustor team, right? He is one of the big reasons that the U S has medals now because yeah, yeah. he was the one who pushed he and Paul, Bocuse, the late Paul Bocuse, pushed Danielle Bleud and Thomas Keller and Jerome, well, Jerome Bocuse was already sort of involved, but he's the one who kind of took help push those people to take a leadership role uh, in the U.S. effort. But I was having dinner with Gavin at a restaurant called Veritas, which is no longer there in oh, New York City. Uh, uh, Scott Bryant was the chef. My old
3: boss worked at Veritas. Oh, really? The Life of Bryant, probably one of the best chapters ever written about food.
0: Yes, in Kitchen Confidential. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, But I was at the bar, and uh, Sam Hazen at the time was the chef. Mm. And Sam comes over, and he says, uh, "I I heard you use you're using Mangalista pork. Uh, You know what do you what do you uh, why do you like it?" And Gavin kind of told him why he liked it. And this is during service, right? And then two minutes later. Uh, Sam comes back out and he has like The shrink wrap styrofoam Bottom package of you know the pork And he goes chef look How much fat there is you know look how much fat I'm paying for how do you justify that And Gavin says well I I cook uh, there's an appetizer We do at the bar you know a snack And we cook it in the fat Amazing, Right so we <clears throat> re- remark- We're actually marketing the fat We don't call it that but right. And um probably mangalista pork spiced something or whatever. Right. And and all the customers are looking at the three of us and I realized this is totally normal for me but I'm not one of these guys. I'm just this person who's like you know, always on the edges of it, but mm-hmm. I've been I've been privy to so much stuff. And that was kind of, that was the moment where I thought I should be writing I should stop Talking about food, I should start talking about. I should start going all in on chefs. Right, um, and because that was always something I loved. I never loved writing recipes, but I always loved being around people who do what you do. I loved being around kitchens. I loved the after hours thing. Um, Same, too much. <laughs> and um, and I always liked uh, ghost writing. You know, every cookbook by a chef has an introduction where they kind of tell their life story. Yeah. Like they encapsulate it. And I always loved writing that, like interviewing them, trying to understand what made them tick, trying to really get to like who they were on the plate is mm-hmm. the way I put it. Um, So I decided to start putting on that that knowledge, uh, you know, into the service of my own my own stuff. Yeah. Um And that's why, you know, so, so, I mean, the last book I did was called Chefs, Drugs and Rock and Roll. I know, I know. It was a history of, you know, the, how the American chef movement started. And then this new book I have called The Dish is kind of celebrates the entire workforce, you know, profiles, line cooks and dishwashers and farmers and delivery people. Um, Yeah. So it's just a world I love. I'm probably in it for good. Um, Yeah. So that's a long answer, but that's... Oh, I like that. That's my story and I'm sticking to it.
3: I just... I think that, like, um, obviously, I have a lot of cookbooks, right? I take after my mentor. Like, Norman has probably 20 times the cookbook collection that I have, but, like, I, I love them. You know, like... But I think the idea of writing... Forget about a cookbook. Just, like, writing a recipe for a cookbook is such a convoluted idea, right? Because... I think food, first of all, it's going to change no matter where you are in the country, right? The product that you can get, but also the story and the feeling behind it. And I was trying to explain to someone the other day how to braise oxtail, right? And like, for me, it's like a religious experience, braising oxtail, because I grew up with it. It means so much to me. It's like a whole day-long thing for me. It's an event, you know, like you're not just going to braise oxtail and it's like, you're just going to cook it. It takes a lot of effort and a lot out of you. It's very hard to put that into words, like on writing. And then also to like consume that and to understand it and how deeply it means to somebody is, it's very difficult. That's why I love the storytelling aspect of, you know, what really gets uh, like how to understand the chef is like how you understand their food. I always say that like when you eat our food, it's like having a conversation with me, right? And I think that a lot of that, it's very much like a feeling thing, you know? And, and when you write recipes, I have such a hard time writing recipes. Like it's, Most chefs do. It's just such a challenge right? Yeah. because, like, how do you it, when you just look at numbers and words on a page, it doesn't really like evoke the feeling of what this really should have for a guest.
0: Do you know what Thomas Keller's line on this is? Do You must have the French Laundry Cook course. OK, if you go take a look at the beginning of it, he talks about, um, you know, uh, feeling free to make the recipe your own, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to <laughs> add a little more of this or whatever. Right. Um, and what he says is uh, recipes have no soul. Right. Right. And right. I, I love that. It's such a simple line, but I think that says what you're saying, right? right. Like like that that thing that you cannot, you know, yes, what is the feeling? Or, yeah. you know, you as a cook might bring a little something extra to it, you know, just the way you season. or. Yeah. You know, like I traditionally, I don't really, I don't use recipes that much anymore, but you know, when I, when I used to use cookbooks, I always added one more clove of garlic than right. the recipe said, always before I even tasted it, uh, cause I knew I was going to want it, you know,
3: I, you know, cause obviously we have a good amount of properties that I have to have recipes for all the properties or whatever. And a lot of times I'll come into a place and, you know, the majority of my cooks are young And they'll be doing a dish and I'll ask them, like, do you know what this means? Do you know why you do this? Do you understand? Or even like, do you know where this dish came from? Do you know why it exists? You know, like all that stuff. Just because I think that if they have some kind of relationship with it, it will benefit the end result every single time over and over. Like, oh, this chef told me that this needs to mean this, or this came because of this, or this happened because of this. Because for me, like, I have a very hard time just doing food to do food. You know, I think that there's a lot of chefs that are incredibly talented that could be like, oh, I have to do this thing, I could do this thing. Needs to have some kind of, like, emotional attachment for me to really feel, like, super pumped about it. Like, I need to, because if not, it's just like, you know, it's you just feel like you're doing this, like, black and white corporate thing, and that's not why I ever got into this, you know? So I don't know. I feel like the, the idea of like I've always ch- it's, it's always been a challenge for me, like writing a recipe. But then like, how do I get this over to someone and get them to like understand how meaningful it really is? You know, and um, I guess that's like the story behind Ariat Forever. Ariat's got like very few recipes at all whatsoever. It's just a lot of like conversation and working through food and like taste points over and over and over again. And, uh, and also like just the end result. Like how does it feel to eat it in the dining room? so on and so forth. It's really a an interesting topic, is people always hit me up all the time, like, hey, how do you do this? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know, but like, uh, how do you want to do it? You know, it's a lot of that, and it's, it's a challenge. I've always felt it to be a challenge.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite recipes that I have at home, there's a chef in New York City, well, he hasn't had a restaurant in New York City in a little bit, but uh, Tom Valenti, mm-hmm. who had a lot of great restaurants over the years, and he's a friend of mine. We did three cookbooks together, and he had always told me about this Thanksgiving stuffing recipe that he had. Mm. And one year, I called him. I said, "I'm making the stuffing this year. I need the recipe." And he told it to me over the phone.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it wasn't like this much of this, this much right. of this. You know, he was like, "Okay, you're gonna you're gonna take some de- you know day old bread, cube it. If it's not." A little stiff. You're going to put it in like a 200 degree oven. Just prop the door open with a cork or something. So, <laughs> you know, that. so it's like even lower than 200, you know, so it's gentle. And, you know, and then he's like, you're going to put it in a bowl and, you know, you're going to add some some stock and you're going to add some this some that. If you don't like celery, you can leave out the celery. Mm. And then there's one place where he says then season the hell out of it, you know? So I have these notes and they say these things like season the hell out of it or add enough till it feels like this. Right. You know, cause uh, his stuffing recipe, you know, at some point you either put on gloves or put your hands in, you know, glad sandwich bags and like knead it. Right. And I love that recipe. And if you look at old cookbooks, there's no cooking times. Oh no, no. There's a guy in New York, a restaurateur. He used to, kind of be the prince of the city, Pino Luongo. Mm. Do you know that? name? No, no. So back in the 80s and 90s, Pino had La Madre, Mm. Coco Pazzo. Actually, Tony Bourdain once worked for him at Coco Pazzo Teatro before Tony was Tony, Mm. Um, uh, uh, Il Toscanacho, Mad uh, Mad 61, where Mark Straussman got famous. Um, lot, he had a lot And he had a place called uh, Sapore de Mare in East Hampton.
1: Got I it. mean,
0: he was at, at the same time. I mean, he was a mogul, restaurant mogul. Pino's first cookbook was called The Tuscan in the Kitchen. And it was notorious at the time because it did not have cooking times. Cool. It did not have quantities for certain things. And it was a lot of do this until your nose tells you it's ready. You know, right. or do this until it looks the, you know, the color of whatever. You right. know, um, the, you know who loved it, though? Food writers, because they were like, that's how you cook, right. you know, but that book should be a classic. And it was ahead of its time, you know, but that's, you know, I don't, I forget the exact word, but the original, you know, recipe, uh, I think originally comes from a word that meant receipt. And it was basically a list. Mm. You know, it wasn't what we now think of a recipe. It was, it was just like, here's what you need to make this thing.
3: You know, let me ask you in the, I mean, so if you started doing this in 1998, nine, right. Seven, eight. Have you seen as 25 years, like what, what has been the biggest jumps or like, have you seen certain portions of the last 25 years that you've seen a lot of change in food or chefs ideology or, um, approach you know i i feel like approaching has changed a ton you know like i uh i i love old school food like that's like the things that really like excite me you know
0: and you mean I, old school cuban or old school french old school french okay i mean
3: it's really like the like the basis of yeah. everything all food all cuban food is all old school because it's never changed so it's like
0: i don't know if you can say that
3: i mean i i i mean i I feel I, like
0: you're the last person on earth who should probably say that
3: well, I'm just saying like the the um from what I grew up with to what people commonly know how oh, sure. Cuban food is yeah. like it's never changed by the way,
0: do you know this about me? Do you know that I grew up with a Cuban stepmother? I didn't know that, yeah, I grew up with way more Cuban relatives than i I grew up going to uh uh you know. Going to late dinner on Christmas Eve, oh, and then the whole family would go to midnight mass, except for like me, my father, and my brother because <laughs> right. we're Jewish. And then my right. stepmother would come home, and we'd open presents at like two in the morning. And yeah. I went to Thanksgiving dinners that had yuca and oh. and rice and beans on the table. That's the only um, thing I really know. Yeah, but I mean, uh, just for just so you know, uh, I grew up with all my I ropa vieja and all, picadillo and all that stuff. I grew up on that stuff.
3: See, that stuff hasn't changed. Right. You know, that stuff is, uh, I mean, we've made changes, but like, it's just like that is old school Cuban food is old school Cuban food. And it's my favorite thing to eat on a daily basis, which I try not to, but you know, it is. But just like broadly speaking of like, let's say American cuisine, which is a melting pot of absolutely everything, right? Have you seen a change in approach, direction, um, chef ideology,
0: all that stuff i mean i could probably answer that for hours yeah. uh i'll tell you the first things that come to my mind um i mean one is you just referred to the classics and you said you meant french cuisine uh i don't think that's a universal answer anymore mm-hmm. I, you know uh i had a conversation several years ago they're sadly about to close but um There's a restaurant called Contra in New York City. Are they about to close? Yeah, they're closing in a... uh, Well, they're closing about a week from when we're sitting here. They're closing this weekend. Wow. Yeah. I just went in to pay my respects. I had dinner there last Friday. It's still great. Yeah. Uh, But the two chefs there, Fabian and Jeremiah, who own it, um, I interviewed them about 10 years ago when they were first taken off. And, you know, they're really young. Like, at that time, I think Fabian was only maybe mid 20s and Jeremiah maybe was 30 right and you know i was said to them you know you must have guys working for you who are older than you and they said yeah and i said well you know historically one of the things people would say about the chef right is the chef is the person in the kitchen who knows the most mm-hmm. and i said you know how do you i mean you guys feel like you know the most they said that's not the case anymore right and i said why and they said because we're not just cooking french food mm-hmm. you know they said we're we're cooking food that has stuff influences ingredients techniques you know from all over the world so we may have someone in the kitchen who lived in the far east and they may put us onto something an ingredient they may show us a, a technique you yeah. know that might be cool and that's cool. Like, th- we're not going to know every nation in the world, right? But that's what food is now, right? Mm. You know, every, everything goes. People are really interested. I feel like every two or three years now, um, you know, a different cuisine kind of comes into vogue. You know, like right, right now, Korean food is having a moment mm. in the United States, in some cities anyway Chicago, New York, uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. a lot of modern Korean restaurants, you know. Um, the whole Middle Eastern thing happened a couple of years ago. You know, a lot of those places kind of happened. Um, I just feel like every couple of years this happens. Uh, that was not the case years ago. You know, everything, like when when I started to be around this stuff in the mid to late 90s, you know, the, the, the kind of reference points were all French, you know, mm-hmm. and, and almost every bio you read of a chef, right? Even if they were cooking a different cuisine, right? They would say, I cook, you know, like let's say it was a Chinese American. I cook Chinese cuisine with a French head, you mm-hmm. know? Or I cook Spanish cuisine with a French head. Or, you know, Floyd Cardoz. I do Indian food with a French. Everybody described themselves like that, right? Because right? they were applying French technique to their food. And I just don't think that's required anymore. I don't think there's a level of formality that that's implied in the food, you mm-hmm. know, I think there's so many acclaimed restaurants- I mean David Chang's partially responsible for this mm-hmm. uh you know there's so many acclaimed restaurants where like guests and servers might be in t shirts yeah. you know, and the music might be really loud, you know, but it might have a Michelin star and it might have three stars from the New York Times. that could not have happened in the nineties, yeah, you know if you weren't a certain amount of fancy right yeah. yeah. You, you were only taken so seriously, you know? Yeah, it was that, like, oh, that's a good place. You know, that's when people used to use this word we don't use anymore, thank God. You know, let's go get some ethnic food, oh, you know? Yeah. That's how people spoke. And what that meant was something that's not, you know, you, you know, European-based, really French, you right. know, and a little fancy, you know? But now people can have huge successes and get lots of great press and, and be treated you know, very, it's not, it's very common now to go to some, you know, benefit or something where people have tasting stations and you'll see like the Daniel Balud's of the world and the John George's of the world. And then you'll see younger people. Some of them have similar type restaurants, but some of them made their name in a food truck, right. you know? I mean, a guy like Roy Choi out mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, he's, com- he's respected by everybody. Yeah. yeah. You know, I he love also, that guy's food. He also built something that you know, I spoke to him in the early days of the lockdown in 2020. He built a rest. You know what he's built this this little fleet of food trucks. I think he has three, um, in in LA. You know, a the investment was minimal. Mm-hmm. B the pricing is gentle to the customers. Yep. And C he never stopped functioning. You yeah. know. A little, They changed a little bit how they would hand the food out of the, of the window of the trucks and the, how the line was handled, but they were still posting where they were going to be, you know. And uh, meanwhile, we had a brick and mortar place in Las Vegas that had to close, you know, during the lockdown. So, um, you know, I think there are also global lessons from people like that, mm-hmm. you know. But I think, anyway, that's, a, that's one very broad answer. Obviously, the culture has changed. Yeah. Um, you know. Some people knew, well, knew enough not to do this years ago, but, you know, chefs don't go out and get drunk with their staff mm-hmm. um, or or do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the staff, you know, in this book I just did, I, I have a, a moment where the, the team in the restaurant I write about comes into work on the first day of their work week, which was a Tuesday. And I, I say, like, this is not the old generation of chefs. You know, they all look fresh, you know, like years ago. You know this. If you came into a restaurant on the first day of the week, you know, people were coming in hungover. Mm-hmm. They look like crap. You know, they're telling these crazy weekend stories. You know, these people look completely wholesome. You know, they, they have water bottles. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they have a skip in their. They look fresh as a daisy. All of them to a person. Right. Yeah. That, it, so like, that's different. Uh, for You know, for better or for worse.
3: It was last week and um, we did an event here. And the person that was putting on the event, she comes up to me. And she was like, could you do me a favor? Could you ask one of your guys for a cigarette? And I'm like, nobody here smokes.
1: Yeah. mat, unimagin- Right.
3: Not one. Yeah. Like, and I just, <clears throat> I think for me, I was like in a bridge time. But like before super healthy. And it's not all like that. but No. It's definitely changed a lot. Yeah. Back to, you know, you're crushing a bottle of Jameson and smoking a pack of Marble Lights pretty much every day. Um, or the shift drink. Yeah. I mean, well, that, that was like the, I just saw a lot of disasters with shift drinks.
0: No, but that, I don't know if younger people know. Like, depending on the restaurant, sometimes you could, you know, you, it was just they'd bring a bunch of beers. Yeah. But some places, if, if they were profitable enough, you know, like you could order a drink and they, you know, in the last half hour of service, you were brought an alcoholic beverage.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You while, while you're breaking down. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Man. That was,
0: but that was normal. That yeah. was not like, a, a, a like, a uh, outside the box thing that a handful of places did. A lot of places did that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's changed. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think there's an openness to new things. Um, that's really important. You know, I think, I think younger chefs are open to everything. I don't think there's a snobism about certain cuisines. Um, that there used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'd like to think it's a more evolved community in terms of, you know, how, how, you know, people of, of different cultures, different, you know, how women are received into the industry. I was, it's not even a young chef. I just stayed at a restaurant in New York called um, essential by Christophe. This, this great uh, people don't, they're going to, I think, know his name now. Um, He's been around a long time. He ran Robichons, um, U.S. restaurants. Um, He ran Laurent Torrendel's. He was the culinary director for that empire. Um, He was, at one point after Danielle, he was the chef of Le Cirque. Mm. Um, Christophe Balan... I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. balanca I think. But he's French. And, you know, a little older than me, that generation of French chef. And after the meal... um, I don't want to name drop, but I, I, I was with Danielle Balud, mm-hmm. who hadn't been there yet and really wanted to go try it out. And we went and we went down to see the kitchen. Now, I, this place hasn't been rated yet. I, I think they're going to probably get, I don't want to jinx them. I think they're going to probably get very well received by Michelin when the next edition comes out. Cool. Um, but we went down to the kitchen. Multicultural team, mm-hmm. very young team, about 50% female, You know, and I'm like, I was shocked. Mm. I'm like, I can't believe a guy like that has a kitchen that diverse, you know, and I that was I thought that was beautiful, Mm. you know, Um, I just think, you know, I have kids who are in college. I have twins who are in college age now. They just don't have the hang ups, at least that my generation had, Mm. you know, Um, I remember when Obama got elected, you know, and me and my friends were like, this is unbelievable. Like, this is great. Like. Uh whatever your politics are, just that this right. country got to that place, and my kids they didn't even know what the big deal was, right you know it didn't strike them as anything unusual, you right. know, um, so I think that's been a really good thing um and then I think right now it's not the food, but I think I think the way people are looking at different business models mm-hmm. um is really cool, and I think it's going to be, I mean, you can tell me what you think, but I think it's going to be part of the answer to the whole, um, you know, everyone learned about how tight restaurant margins are in 2020 when there were places that couldn't make payroll. Right. You know, if they were closed for a week, you know, most people outside the industry had no idea. Hmm. But, you know, I look at like, I just visited a restaurant called Birdie's in Austin, Texas. They just got restaurant of the year from food and wine.
1: Birdie's.
0: And uh, there's a guy, so it's a husband and wife, our Ar- is the husband, mm-hmm. uh, he work for Danny Meyer's group in New York, cool. and his wife Tracy did also, but she's the chef, she was in the kitchens, mm-hmm. Gramercy Tavern, a restaurant called Untitled, but they have this really cool service model, right, where no reservations, when you, when, when you come in, when you make, you know, when you're at the front of the line, you come in at the podium, it's a little wider than normal, They have the menu there, and you've probably reviewed it when you were in line. You place your initial order, and then you sit, and then you're brought your food. But the food is like, you know, serious food, you know, Mm -hmm. like like you would be happy to eat there. I was thrilled to eat there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Like it could have been food served in one of Danny Meyer's restaurants in New York. Cool. Once you've been served, if you want more wine, if you want some more food, then there's someone who can take your order. But they eliminate a whole layer of staff, right, and um uh i I haven't aired it yet, but I interviewed tracy and and i she was explaining to me she doesn't even calculate out her food costs, like she has enough of a sense mm-hmm. of where they should be mm-hmm. just intuitively that she doesn't have to get that specific about it because they have a comfortable enough margin, margin. there, yeah,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Or something happened, you know, they had a new child and I forget the circumstance, but they needed to close for a week. Somebody got sick and, you know, they didn't have enough staff and they were able to absorb a week of not being open, you know. And but, you know, we're seeing a lot of stuff like that now.
3: Well, I mean, models are uh, changing every single day. Like, uh, I mean, just like look at what delivery has done to restaurants in general, like um, the way that the clientele base Uh, consumes information about food and where they want to go and how they want to dine and how they want to eat all that has changed completely i think just over the last decade and i think that you know the more people understand about the business the more it's going to continue to change i mean this is definitely not something that's going to be like um change completely overnight old school kind of like restaurant nature is going to be be around for a long time but like Every day there's a new model that works a little bit better than the old one, because I think everyone who kind of pines for it to be completely changed overnight, it's just not possible.
0: It never happens that way. It, it, it's just, ba- it, I always say baby steps.
3: Right. And people are just like, well, you know, the model is so archaic. And so, I mean, but it's been around for a very long time.
0: But it's ch- right. But it's changed in small ways that people for sure you don't necessarily like. Every time you talk about it, I just started teaching a course in like chef and restaurant history mm-hmm. at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America. And every every change you could describe through restaurant history, it all seems very quaint now, mm-hmm. right? And people are like, what's the big deal? Like, like these restaurants that opened in New York by Americans in the early 80s, the fact that the menu was not in French. mm mm-hmm. Now who thinks that's a big deal now yeah, it's right. now it's on you know now if it's in French, you're like, oh, I gotta ask the waiter to explain five of these things, right, okay, but that was a big deal, mm-hmm. you know, and, but you say this to people and they're like, "Well, what who cared? People cared, mm-hmm. you know like these little things, but that's how the big things finally happen. you know you can't just go change everything whole cloth like overnight,
3: you yeah. know people I mean, I need think
0: to get used to that kind of stuff,
3: I think just like restaurants. I, I can talk about like kitchen specifically going back to how much like the culture of a team has changed so much and it always starts at the top, right? Cause like the way I always try to explain to my chefs that have their own teams, is like, you know, you can be the chef and you can have standards. It's the way that you relay that to your staff and the kind of culture that you're trying to create. Like, we can't, I mean, I worked for some absolute, Terrible humans, like, you know, plates thrown at me, pie pans thrown at me, burning me with spoons, like the whole thing. Can we
0: just say when you say that, you're you're not saying you're not exaggerating for effect. These things really happen.
3: Oh no, they really happen. Yeah, and my thing is like I suffer from, like, I very much love great food, so I am a jacked up human being by nature, and I have to tell myself all the time. You know, you need to fucking relax. You need to fucking chill. And it's the way that we talk to people and the way that we get them to understand, like, what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. And that's what I try to explain to all of my chefs is like, you know, be stern and be honest, but be honest. Don't be an asshole. There's a difference. Be honest of why we're doing something wrong all the way from like service all the way to how we execute food. And it's like just that conversation alone we couldn't have before. Because before it was like the chef said whatever the fuck he said, and that's the way it's got to be. And like, it's also like I, I can tell you up until eight years ago when I opened, I never heard a chef tell me that they fucked something up. Never in my life. And I, may, I try to like. But you a, saw them do it. Absolutely. They just didn't, and everyone knew
0: it. Right.
3: And, yeah. it, and it's like, you know, the other thing now is it's okay to fuck things up. That's part of life. That's the, just the reality. So I also make it a point When I make a mistake Whether I'm working expo Working a station Ordering food Whatever Guys I fucked this up I apologize I'll be better Just having that conversation beforehand Couldn't happen You know it was always just like It was seen as weakness For sure And, and, there was now, an e-
0: and the ego involved
3: I think now the weakness is not being able to do that You know like that's An incredible weakness You know f- forget it Like there's just it, There's so many layers too It's like i've been berated by chefs that have been like incredibly demeaning and just like this is why your girlfriend doesn't like you and i i don't know understand how you have friends all that shit and it's like dude how the fuck did we get here how did you get here as a human right it's okay to be super passionate and like love great food but it's just like all that in between stuff once we opened ariette i always said you know like yeah I'm I'm super hot headed, but we're never going to get back to that point. Like the the idea is to change the culture about like just the way we communicate with each other. And it's also like, you know, I have a tendency also to lose my temper and I will pull my team outside and apologize for losing my temper. And I do that all the time. And it's like it's because beforehand when a chef lost their temper, that was just the way it was. Yeah. And you had to just eat it
0: and you just had to deal with it. And it's like, well, you still have the pressure, right? right, Like that, you still have the pressure of a service, right? And, and some, you know, it's funny. um, Well, first, can I ask you when you became a chef for the, when you became a chef for the first time, Uh or maybe even when you were a sous chef for the first time and you had people, you know, quote unquote under you, right? Mm -hmm. Did you, how, what kind of a transition did you have to put yourself through? In other words, you had all these terrible role models on, on this level. When you first, you know, were given the reins, did you, did you act that way yourself and have to change? Did you even realize at that point in time uh-huh. that that was messed up?
3: Yeah. When I was, uh, uh, like my third sous chef job, I would say it was probably my hardest job ever. We won't <clears throat> get into names or whatever, but <clears throat> the one thing I realized is that I was like the bridge between this, like, uh. Like, it almost felt like a dictatorship. It was just, like, really, you know, like, um, anything was wrong. It was just an absolute nightmare. And then there was my team that was incredibly, like, incredibly talented, super young, um, and fighters. Like, they were just, it was a bunch of, um, it was um, two female chefs and four, it was, uh, I think there was six, seven, maybe seven of us all day, including myself. And it was, like... They were they were bangers, really good, super young. Um, I think all of us, including myself, were cooking a style of food that we weren't super familiar with. Um, You know, working for like a big New York chef, and you know, just it's a different world from how like Miami prepared you. Miami didn't prepare you for that style of food. It just didn't until we started cooking it every day. And um, I, you know, like I've stayed close with everyone on that team. Like we're some of them are like my closest best friends Mm -hmm. and we talk about it all the time you know water cooler talk is what i call um and they're just like you know like you shielded us you were like the bridge this is why we stayed i mean that team was together for almost almost three full years which is like a an eternity in restaurants and that was the first time i kind of understood uh kind of my goals and my passion about changing the kitchen culture thing you know I also came from playing like organized sports. So it was, I understood it a little bit more like how to build a team, how to build a culture, how to build camaraderie, how to build understanding, but also at the same time. And that was when I was 27, six. Also at that time I realized. Yeah. When you take on that much of a burden, right. As a sous sous chef, chef, whatever it may be, you start to like slice up your personal life. And so, like, this is where I always have issues with, like, the work-life balance stuff, right? Because um, then you're putting so much of, like, your personal effort and, like, your personal passion towards humans. Forget about food. We're not even talking about food now. Changing, like, um this culture that's been around forever. And now it's, like, bleeding into your personal life. Because people will call you just to talk and be like, hey, this happened. My girlfriend left me, my mom, whatever. And now you're, like, this... Uh, Not only like their boss, their friends, someone they confide in. Um, It's a huge responsibility. And I think at that point is when I realized that like this thing is a lot bigger than just cooking food. And I I mean, I I, like. I love that part, but and I've said it for a long time, the people make the place. If the people aren't in a good place, the food will never be good. And that's when I think my. Cause I used to be like incredibly crazy, right? Like, and I was just kind of like learning from what I was being shown, you know, like in kitchens, so yeah, pie, pans and whatever, all the whole thing. Um, but then I realized if I wanted to do something different with food and the culture of like a restaurant group, I I had to be different. I had to approach it different. So, I think that's um, you know. The, the pressure like how the pressure mounts on you is it that adds a whole other different layer of problems but when you start to understand the culture that you want in your kitchen i think is the most important thing
0: did you have one moment that was like you know in this area like your rock bottom did you have one moment where you saw the impact of your you know how you were talking to people or treating people and and you thought i got to turn this around
3: man it depends like as an owner or not as an owner because there was two there's been several rock bottoms, and I think there's the um, mental standpoint of being a chef, working for someone else paying the bills and then being a chef for your absolute everything livelihood yeah it's two different rock bottoms interesting you know like I think that the um <sighs> when I worked for other people, I don't quite think that I, I I thought I hit rock bottom, but I didn't really I didn't really know what that felt like until I actually hit it. And you mean when you became an owner? Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's because it was like complete livelihood at that point. And I think that you get driven to a place that like you're completely alone, and you feel like the whole world is against you because these people don't understand how important this plate of food is. And it's not. And it's now and that
0: registers with you as people not caring. Right. Right. Eight years in, like,
3: I get it. You know, at that point, a year in i didn't get it and i remember there was one day and i had such a band of misfits that were in my kitchen i had like you know my my very very best friend geo fester that is still with us the only person that's been here with me since day one um we had another guy that was with us for a long time his name is matt hawkins super talented guy uh he worked for norman also just like me and geo did and then the rest of them were like just like misfits like these guys uh you know Bangers, but like they just didn't get it And I remember we're in the middle of a service And I had taken my first day off in like It's probably like three or four weeks And uh, It was a Thursday And I came up and the kitchen was just an Absolute fucking disarray And I hate that I'm like I'm a controlled chaos Kind of guy when it comes to kitchens Like I know it's always going to be chaotic But you can control the chaos You just need to be smarter than it And I remember I walked to the back Because the area has like a little back area That now it's all built out before it wasn't And there was just a couple chairs there And I just uh, This was there's two rock bottoms here And uh, I just get All three chairs and I fucking annihilate Them break them on the floor Fling them 30 feet across Yelling at the top of my fucking young lungs And I'm just like in tears And I'm like I don't know if I can fucking Do this Second part which was actually three weeks Later Um, in the middle of brunch, I had worked all seven days, and I used to work a double Sundays for brunch, right? Because like year two, we were very slow. Like, man, it was bad; it was real bad. And I remember working brunch, and two of my cooks called out, and it was just me and one other person, and we got annihilated. And I, I like, we got annihilated, but we survived. I've been in plenty of services like that. Like it was it was hairy but not bad. Yeah. You know, and brunch is always kind of hairy. That's just how brunch survives. And um I had a an anxiety attack after service, walked to the back um and I just fucking like I I've never felt the immense amount of pressure like it did at that moment ever. You know, like years like, later dealing with the whole like Michelin coming to Miami and um, you know, more business things, worldwide plague. Honestly, none of it felt like that one moment. And it was just because I was so fucking exhausted. I was so fucking hungover. I was like, you know, I straight at that point, I was like a pack and a half of cigarettes deep a day, bottle of Jameson a night a day. And it was like, I had never quite felt that rock bottom before, even three or four weeks before breaking a bunch of chairs, screaming at the top of my lungs. I always tried to just like, not direct these things at people just because they had always been directed at me so many times. Cause it's not really their fault. I failed. And that's what every chef needs to realize when the team fails. It's because you failed. It's not because they failed. It's because you failed. Cause you are the leader. Well, right? to
0: go back to your sports background, right? Right. They fire coaches when teams are losing, right? Mm-hmm. They don't fire a linebacker. They don't fight. Fi- right.
3: And it's like that, um, you know, I, I would think that world the world changed slowly after those points because, like, we were still in a really rough spot and um, it took a lot of evolving. I mean, but that was six years ago, you know, and now, you know, it's restaurants, right? Everything, everyone feels like the world's ending every day. You know, it's just the reality of it. Like, every day there's a new piece of equipment that's broken, a cook that didn't show up. I don't know, the AC's broke. I don't know, there's a fucking laundry list of shit that happens. But it's like, all right. So, um, what do we we can either complain about it or we find a solution yeah and that's just the reality it's like that uh, i think those are like the um, uh those rock bottom stories like they there's are still like in the back of my brain all the time because now i tell people the goal is to not go back to stuff like that you know and i tell my team all the time like you need to lean on me because i never want you guys to get there i remember the And it wasn't me, really. It was uh, the area team, week before Michelin happened, was going to be announced, right? Um, Man, it was like uh, just the most amazing team that restaurant's ever seen. Fucking just like absolute dogs in the kitchen. Just like so caring. They loved each other so much. The food was so on point. Um, You know, think about it from that team. We have three chefs now that are spread out from that team. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, from prep cooks to even the dishwashers And just like I remember um, I believe I was maybe here that night And then I, I started my night here And then I went over there And I just observed service For like the final like two hours And I just saw it They were like super edgy They just were um Right at the edge Like they they wanted to be pushed off the edge So I said nothing the entire service Helped out You know Nothing crazy. <clears throat> Last pickup of the night was a rough one. I saw them kind of like stumble. You could see some uh, some of the guys were just tired, overtly focused. So that just makes you tired. And my chef, which is, uh, uh, he's been with me for like three years. I've known him for like 11 or 12. One of the most caring, hardworking, and talented people that I know. Just storms out the back door. Same back door that I went out six years before. Throws his hat. He's not like a super emotional guy. I'm the like that's my job. I'm the emotional guy. I'm the one that's very loud. He's like very quiet.
0: Fire and ice. Yeah. He's
3: um, he's sarcastically funny. I just think that I'm funny. So like, we're a great team, and he's super bent out of shape. So the team, we all break down together. Then we go to the back and we just sit there for like three hours. I mean, we must have been there till like four in the morning, and just like, you know, because they all wanted it so bad. And they all wanted to, cause I, I, like, I love the dog mentality. Like, I just want to prove everyone wrong. Like, fuck all these people. Everyone says that we can't do this food and do it this way and do it this in this place. Um, wearing t-shirts, listening to hip hop or Spanish music or whatever. Everyone told us this shit wouldn't work. And then when we elevated, everyone told us that shit wouldn't work. So we want to prove them all wrong. And I told them, you've already done that. We've already done that. And I get it. The chip is nice, right? the chip is awesome and trust me i want it as bad as you guys but we've already fucking done it there was no one there for me 10 years ago saying listen you're already doing great chill you got this never and that's what i always think of as like the biggest difference from me today to eight years ago like eight years ago i'd be like yeah i love that you guys care so much yeah this shit's hard ah, ah, ah. it's cool we've already done it man we've already we're already here Look at, we just were slammed. That's a blessing. Every single day, you guys weren't here when I used to do two covers a night and work the line by myself. You guys were not here for that shit. That was hard. This right here, we're lucky to be here. Fortunate. And what is luck? Preparation meets opportunity. My coaches told me that shit all the fucking time. And I think that, like, that dialogue is different. The, the, like, how we talk to people, how we care about people is totally different, too. It's like... You know these guys. They know I'll take the shirt off my back for them, and I mean that shit. They call me at two in the morning, and they're in trouble. They know that I'll come get them, and it's like, you know, that that's just not how I came up. You know, and I'm 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 proud of of us for that as a company because that takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot. You spend a lot more money doing that than you do running a lot of places like when i was coming up you know
1: yeah
0: well what you just said to me that's so that's so and i've heard other chefs say it you know the 2 a.m phone call you know if they're in trouble yeah i mean that says so much about the industry right because um there's the fact that you may have people working for you who may need to make a call like that at two in the morning yeah um but then the fact that you'll be there for them you know and this is to me you know i was just we did a little i we had an event here last night as I'm sitting here with you, and at one point in the evening, we talked about mentorship, you know? And it's this thing that barely exists in any other industry anymore, you know? But, you know, these these people, you know, you, 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 um, like when you see Norman Van Aken, do you call him chef still? Yeah, of course. I mean, I don't know if people understand how special that is, right? right? Because there's the person you're working for at a a given moment That's you you know, you call them chef, right? Mm But then there are these people you call them chef the way you call your parents mom and dad you know right. like for life those people are there for you for life you can call for advice
1: right. they'll
0: come they'll come take a look at your new place and and point out stuff maybe you're missing they'll do anything right, right? that's not a common thing in this world you know yeah, I, and and and, and I, look i say it all the time the restaurant the industry has gotten so much negative attention in the last ten years. For sure. And everything that's been written is true. And and there were some bad actors that needed to and they still are who need to be exposed or needed to be exposed. But um but then there's stories like this, right? And there's I think there's so many people who have been saved by this industry. Um uh I think there are so many people who they don't fit anywhere else. You know, like they found rush rest- they found cooking kitchens that right. world and they're like, "Oh, like this I can do." Well, it's I, like
3: know. uh Norman not saved my career. Your career. Without a doubt. Because what you were like teetering? Well, I it's um you know like it, I have a lot of love for that man. He he taught me a ton. He taught me uh a lot of like out of the box thinking when it came to food. But apart from that, uh, it was in a very dark place. Uh, this was like mid-20s. And, um, you know, like I had gotten fired from a job because uh, some ownership dispute and my chef was scared to lose his job. And then basically I had gotten fired, right? It's very weird time. And I went on like this hardcore three-day bender, bad. That was probably one of the worst ones of my entire life. And before I, I had taken the job as the executive sous chef of that space, um, Norman had reached out to me. It was like, hey, you know, we're opening this thing. Would you like to come here and be like an arrogant little fuck? I was like, nah, I'm good, right? Um, so I, I don't know how I mustered the energy to do this. I emailed him back from that email and uh, was like, uh, you know, Can you meet? And I walked into his office, which his office was just behind the kitchen. It was like open, you know? And I looked like shit. Absolute fucking trash. And he just looked at me and goes, are you okay? And I'm like, not really. Told him the whole story. They didn't have a job for me. He found a way to get me a job. And from that day to today, my career is completely different. Without that point, I would have never have gone... To, you know, then work for Michael after and then you know, after that was when uh, I opened a yet. So right. like um, it just was it like without that point, I don't quite know where I would have been next, you know, and he was just very open about like, you know, whatever you need, we're here for you. And it's just uh, still to this day, like that conversation, I say,
0: I will say it saved my career. And the amazing thing about you, the way you tell it, is he had enough presence of mind and had enough empathy yeah. that he asked you if you were okay. Right, right. You didn't come in and say, "I'm about to lose it. I'm on the right. I'm on the edge." He could tell.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's he, an,
0: that's amazing.
3: Well, I mean, you know, like he, um, you know, at that point, Norman was at a different stage in his career because I've obviously heard like stories of young chef Norman and how he was hard ass and very tough with me. He was always like very open, like more like, uh, just like an amazing teacher, you know, uh, about cuisine and food and history. And I mean, he's like an encyclopedia of food anyways. So just like, um, it was, it was huge. And that was the second time that I worked for him. The first time I worked for him, I was just a prep cook and, um, I left my resume like 15 times in an empty space. Finally got a call back. But it was, you know, this time was definitely more impactful and it was just like, you know, I got to know a legend and I like I, that time is pivotal to like where I am
0: today. Thank you for all that. Yeah. I didn't mean to take over with all these questions. No, it's cool. I love it. I love it.
3: I, you know, um, I just like every... I adore the idea of like understanding chef stories because they're always so multi-layered, You know, like every chef has such an interesting trajectory to like where they got and service people in general. Like a lot of times just food in general, right? Because like no one, I would say a lot of times people don't grow up saying like, I want to be in the food world. You know, like it's just like then it becomes this like incredible passion. And then you have this weird story of peaks and valleys of ups and downs to get you to like wherever you're at. That's partly why I love it so much and partly why like restaurants to me and and I worry every day that we're going to lose the culture of of just restaurants in general, right? Um, Because like there's so many different walks of life, so many different backgrounds, and you can learn so much stuff from so many people that just walk. I I remember like uh, my first sous chef job, I was way too young. I had no fucking idea what I was doing. And then I had these two Haitian dishwashers and they were like so incredible. And they would teach me something that I had no idea about every single day. And they were just like the sweetest people on the planet. And I remember when I left that job uh, five years later, I just saw them walking down the street. They cried. They gave me hugs. They were just like, but, you know, like those kind of moments happen so often in the food world because you're just you're like introduced so, so many different walks of life. And I just find it like beautiful, you know, and that's why. When I say I worry about the food world, it's like, where is technology going to take us? Oh, yeah. Where's, like, what is the next step for food? And everyone asks me all the time, and I'm like, I don't have time for that shit right now. Like, I just... Too busy working. Right. Yeah. So, like, maybe in a couple years, I could think about it a little bit more. But, like, all I care about is really amazing food and really great teams to go along with it, you know? So, I don't know. I don't know, man. It, it's a, a like there's some people that do food because they, one, they think it's going to make them famous too, because uh, maybe they just fell into it. And then three, because they're incredibly passionate about it, about the food and the experience and the story behind it. And like, for me, I like to consider myself the third. I did kind of fall into it, but like, um, you know, I'm super passionate about like the storytelling behind it, and why it's happening. And um, does this food have a purpose? I feel that a lot. Um, I worry about like the purpose part a lot, because I feel like um, the more shitty restaurants we have, because there's a lot of shitty ones. Let's just be honest. There's a lot of big yes. box, yeah, big box trash that have no stories. The more people go to that shit, the less people are getting to like the really good places that yeah. have like amazing stories.
0: How do you, uh, you know, you've got a, you've got a bunch of restaurants. You got two more coming, yeah. One. Oh, I thought it was two more. One. Okay. Yeah. Did you just open one? What did I just well, read? Well, I read kind of, something that con- said they're were... connected. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Two so, concepts, one, one, one roof. Is
3: like, so, imagine if this thing had like windows that open and there was a bar. Got that it. Face okay. outside. Got it. But they're one in the same.
0: Okay. Uh, you know, and you talk about how important the storytelling is to you, right? Yeah. If you add up how many menu items you have at any given time, that's got to be 215. Okay. Yeah. How many stories do you have to tell? Like, are they all yours at this I'm, point? Do I'm some running. of them come from your team, or, or are you like rummaging through your memory banks all the time and finding, you know, new things to 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 draw on? So, I'm running out of stories, <laughs> but
3: um, I would say that there. I think there was also like a good change over the last eight years for me that I used to feel like all of it had to come from me, right? And that is definitely no longer the case. Um, I'm a big fan of like creation through collaboration, like everyone at a table. There's a reason why everybody works here. There's a reason why I want everyone to believe in this. And I also want everyone to feel like an ownership portion of this too. I want them to understand that like, it's also like when we talk about food, I want them to understand the restaurant fully. So the food that they're presenting as it goes time over time over time, they could present 10 dishes and 10 don't make it but maybe the 11th one is when they try to when they finally understand what the restaurant means and the story behind it and i think that just comes with time you know some other people that have been with me for long enough they just kind of get it you know um i'm also just blessed with the fact that i have like really talented chefs that just give an absolute fuck ton about great food you know and and i think it's also Like, every place is completely different, uh, which helps the story aspect. I remember when I was at and I was like, you know, I'm like, I almost felt like a little handcuffed to, like, 30 menu items, you know? Because I also, like, where we're sitting at Chug's, like, the idea of, like, everyday food. I love that. And, like, how can I impact the story of the Cuban-American story through everyday food, which is more impactful, really? Because you can come here three times a week. And, like, then I became infatuated with that idea. Then... Um, a place like Lorel came along and we're talking about like an ode to classic French cuisine which is something that I, I very much love it's like how do we clean up like brasserie food and like make it a little more nouveau and like try to get people to understand that which is a work in progress but like also those chefs in that space like they love that idea and you know now that space specifically like they come to me with shit all the time yeah all the time yeah and then the Gibson happened and then so like I'm a big uh, believer in like a space that has like every restaurant is like alive and it tells you like what it needs you know, yeah. and that space. It's down the street from where I grew up. I saw like, I seen it be, be shit hole after shit hole after shitty dive bar after shitty college bar. And then finally we had a, I had a chance to take it and I'm like man all this space needs is someone to do it its justice. It's in this like really discreet corner. Of, you know, Coralway and 22nd next to a bike shop and a gas station. But this neighborhood... Is that right?
0: I, that's near where the Latin America used to be? No. That's a little farther down the way. A little further down. Yeah. Okay.
3: And um, all it really needs is someone to, like, show it some love. So then I, I brought back one of my very best friends that we cooked at what I considered the best restaurant in Miami at that time. And... We are like, we're going to do this shit like how we know how to do things. We're going to have 20 menu items. We're going to make all our pasta in-house. We're going to make charcuterie. We're going to do like, and just kind of like, you know, and the, the kitchen is like fucking small, you know, but he was like, yeah, let's fucking go. And then, you know, at, at that time, um, Chris Hughesby's incredibly talented, but he hadn't like directed his own ship yet. So like, you know, we talked through a menu. I put the first menu in place, but now he comes to me. He's like, hey, I think this is a good idea. What about if we change this and this is coming into season we do this and then you see like somebody grow in their position you know which also was something that like for me i felt like i didn't have once i took like a bigger role i didn't have anyone to like kind of like push me along you know and I, i feel like hopefully i can be that for a lot of them you know like and it's just kind of like how it's just Happened and now it's their story Like tell me about the story you want to tell Um what are the things That matter to you why do they matter to you Um and then how Do we get the guest to understand The story also and I, I Think you know like Uh something that's been really hard For me personally is like to not be like Just like in the absolute trenches Like every single day you know Like that's like the heart it's been the hardest thing for me To let go of um Because the more that you're there and just kind of like in the trenches, the less opportunity people have to grow as a leader instead of just supporting them. But also, that's what drew you to it in the first place, right? Which part? Cooking. Well, I mean, honestly, like any day that I... you
0: said earlier, you work a station sometimes.
3: I mean, I still often. And my favorite days are the days that I'm just in one place the entire day and I'm just in the kitchen the entire day and we're just working through stuff or just whatever happens, happens whatever station you need to work, whatever. Those are still absolutely, for me, like the most important days because all the other stuff is my job, but that stuff is like what I love. And it's what, you know, like kind of um, just that team camaraderie, great food, um, working together like that. That to me is, I think, what will keep me in this for like a really long time because, you know, like people get tired. It happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you asked me that question before, what's different today? This this is like kind of would just be a footnote. But the number of chefs I know of your generation and just a little bit younger who's, who now make a point of oh, yeah. getting on a station, they don't want to let go of that. Right. I never saw that 20 years ago. Really? Never. I'm sure there were people who do it. Tom Colicchio does it. Right. I just found that out recently. He sometimes likes to jump on the pasta station. Wow. Um He said his cooks don't love it when he does that, but I'm sure they don't. Yeah. But he, he, uh, but I get that because Tom was always known when he was coming up as like, you know, like an animal in the kitchen, just like an amazing cook, right? Right. But no, I I don't think that was a normal thing. But I know so many younger chefs now who make, they want to do it. They don't want to let, they don't want to let go of that tactile, tactile part of their job, their life.
3: What I, I also think it's what keeps you, like creatively going, because the less you actually cook, like you know, it's the same thing as like going to farms, talking to farmers, just like when you are on the line, like that's the, really the most connected you can be to food, you know. And if you are not doing that, it's like you can you could think a dish is good, but it could really not fucking work until you are on the line working through it, or just working through a station. I mean, I also worked for a lot of guys. That would come up with what they thought was a great dish. And it would absolutely bury the line. And it would absolutely not be a good time. And I try my hardest to do that. To not do that anywhere. area gets buried all the time. But all the other ones, they don't get buried very often. You know? It's just, you know, like, what fun is that? That's not fun for anybody. And they're not going to do a great job. Maybe one out of five will be great. But, like...
0: Right. Save that for like the big wine, the big wine dinner you right. know, where you're only going to put out 20 plates or something like that.
3: Well, it's also like, you know, not everyone is like a linea, like they have an army in the kitchen, you know. Yeah. And it's uh, unrealistic unless you're paying, you know, twelve hundred dollars per person. Um, shit's not real. It's just it's like a it's a facade. Yeah. It's not real restaurant world. Yeah. It's um, you have to make it delicious and, you know, easily executable so you could do it. 35 40 45 times in a night yeah so um i'm gonna take a break because i need a refill i need to refill okay okay where did we leave off
0: no the very last thing was yeah i don't remember
2: either
3: (laughs) (laughs) i only had one negroni too that's pretty good
2: we have the technology to check but we don't know how to use it. no
3: i don't think it's that big of a deal um So, I guess like we've obviously talked about like what you've seen change in the last twenty five yeah. years. What do you think is going to be something that you see change in the next five years?
0: I well, I think unconventional restaurants are going to be. Are, we're going to see more of that. What's that mean? Well, whether it's um, uh, whether it's more food trucks, uh-huh. whether it's more they may chefs functioning in different ways, right? Sure. I mean, we already some of this has already happened, right? Yeah, yeah. It just hasn't been observed. You know, there are chefs now who are pop up chefs. Yeah, yeah, that's what they do. They make their living doing it, and I, I don't think they're probably going to put themselves under the burden of owning a restaurant again. You know, I think those those are people who are very happy. Um, you know, the food truck thing, these, these different models I was talking about, like Birdies. Yeah, um, I just think. Restaurants are going to go through a metamorphosis greater than anything you and I have experienced in our lives. Because for all the stuff we've talked about in this conversation, restaurants still look like restaurants. You know, what they're doing might be a little different. You know, the food may have changed. The makeup of the people in the kitchen might have changed. The level of formality may have changed. Alex Stupak, who's a chef in, I know you know, yeah. but who's a chef in New York. He has a group of restaurants, they all, well, not anymore, but most of them are under the Empeon umbrella, Mexican yeah. restaurants. He said to this, this thing to me maybe 10 years ago, and I thought it was so smart, not just about that moment, but about the future. And he said, people just want the stuff. I thought that was the best line. Because he was doing, at that time, he had a bar in the East Village in New York. Mm-hmm. And they had like, you know, he did a cheeseburger, he did tacos, and he did whatever. But then he had a tasting counter in the bar. I love that. And this is a guy who, he was the original pastry chef at Alinea. Mm-hmm. He worked at WD50. Like, serious background. And, and uh, and you know, he said, there's, there's people who come in like wearing Metallica t-shirts, you know, and they're ordering expensive wine. And I'm cooking them very... Fancy food, you know, but we're in a bar, right? Yeah. And he said, and their attitude is, I just want the stuff. Well, once you have that recognition and once enough people out there buy into that, then how much of the other stuff do you need, right. you know? And so I think we're just going to see. I mean, again, it's already happening, right. but to the point we made a few minutes ago about baby steps, I think we've taken a lot of those baby steps. And I think, you know, the tipping point is coming yeah. where I'm not saying, I th- most restaurants are going to still look like the restaurant we're sitting in right now, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think there's going to be a proliferation of restaurants that don't. You know, like some people use the term restaurants without walls, you know? I just think we're going to see things that are structurally different. They might be on wheels. They might just be a traveling chef. Yeah. And and I think the terminology eventually may change, you know, I, as it has for restaurants over time.
3: I just think that, like... um I mean, the idea of running a restaurant, opening a restaurant, building a restaurant is incredibly fucking expensive. And it continues to get more expensive every day. And it's like, I think that that burden, like I look back to eight years ago and to where we're at now. I'm just like, man, I mean, I built that thing for a box of rocks compared to like what we're sitting in and what we have built since then. It's just astronomical. And I, so I understand like you can see it happen every day like how the model of a restaurant is changing. But I also think that like the hardest thing right now is the guest connectivity, right? Because like there's so much in between it now. So like social media, how uh, that just becomes a lot of smoke and mirrors. And it's just there's so many more layers now. Like it's like, how about the way you reserve? Right. Right. I, I it's just like to, in order to get people into your space, one the competition is furious, yeah, right secondly, it's like so now for i think about it, for a new chef, they have to be like a social media manager, they have to be their own p r company, they have to also build things, they also have to be handy, which I'm not um you know, then after all that, then they also have to run a kitchen. A lot of times they're going to have to learn how to run the front of the house. It's just so layered, you know, and that's why like a lot of people come to me, too. It's like, you know, I have this idea for a restaurant. Like, tell me what you think. Do you know, this is a space. And I just like walk them through like all the hurdles and then ask them like, OK, so what's the plan now? Because, again, I just I want to be able to give people like the failures that I went through. So that they can understand them before they get into it. Like you have to think about all these hurdles to get to this point, you know, because there's a lot. I just I I really do. I would have to agree that I think that the landscape of how restaurants come across is going to be completely different
0: now. Well, uh, you know, let me ask you this. You were talking about how much it costs to build out a restaurant, right? And how much trouble it is. How much of that is just your own standard, right? Yeah what you want, what you, you know, I want my, you know, self-respect and all that stuff. And how much is it what the, what the, what the, you know, what you think the guest demands? Like, do you think, well, let me just leave it there and then I have a follow, I'll I'll tell you the follow-up. That's a really, I think
3: about that question a lot because.
0: This goes back to the stuff, right? Yeah. Like does the stuff have to come in a Tiffany's box or could the stuff come in a box you found outside a liquor store?
3: So, especially, like, Miami is a great example. There's restaurants in Miami that easily cost north of $15 million. When you walk, like, now I walk into them and be like, fuck, this is fucking crazy. Like, and I, and I, I know because, you know, I bought... Th- these tables were actually incredibly expensive for me. You know, like, those chairs, I still know how much they cost. Like, all this stuff, right? Like, um, and then I go into these other places and they're just like... deuce table Then you gotta buy the chairs We haven't even bought the lights Countertops, like, all these things And And I look at it all, I'm like, how the First of all, how the fuck did we afford all this? Secondly, like, how are they gonna get this money back? And two is Is this why people come here? Because a lot of times And I'm not saying all the time A lot of times, all that stuff, super nice You go, and the food fucking sucks And the service is absolute trash But like is this what people want? Is this where I fucking miss the boat? You know, like, um, I, I asked myself that question all the fucking time because it's kind of infuriating. Because, like, again, a lot of chefs don't come with this gigantic bankroll, right? <laughs> yes. To, to spend $15 million in a space and do all these things. And it's just kind of like, and then you go there and then the end result is absolute trash. And I've had better meals, like, you know... I think about the time that I ate an at animal in LA. Right? Loved that restaurant, and it's just—it was a box with two paintings.
0: Yeah, right. Bar in the back. Bar in the back. Yep. Small kitchen. Yep. Food was delicious and totally unique. Right. Dishes that they weren't riffs on other dishes. Right. They were like, where right. did this come from? And I like—I always think about that too. It's like
3: we don't need a lot of shit. The food just needs to be great, and the service needs to be excellent. And it's like, yeah, but this is what I mean, like. Uh, when I tell people that I love like old school restaurants that's all I really mean service needs to be great food needs to be great the other stuff like this is a beautiful restaurant I love this place but like this I mean this was uh, not what other places cost it just period and like I know because I've talked to people I'm just like how did you where where did you get the money for that like this was a stretch to do for us at the time that we built it and it's like it fascinates me all the time. People just want the stuff. Make the stuff great, and how they get the stuff too is also important.
0: So, so here's what here's what I was gonna. This is my follow up, right? Uh, maybe it's not even a question. I'll see how I'll I'll see if it ends with a period or a question mark. But there are people I think about when I ask the question, and there are people I think about when you were just talking about this fifteen million dollar build out. You know, by your estimate, uh, there is a. Restaurant group in New York They've been getting a lot of press And they deserve it They're amazing guys Uh, But these guys have a company called Unapologetic Foods They're doing Indian restaurants all over New York They have a place called uh, uh, Damaka Uh, They have a place called Ada. They have a place called Sema. They have Rowdy Rooster Which is an Indian fried chicken sandwich place Yeah, that
3: sounds delicious Um,
0: And they have a place called Masala Wala And Sons in Brooklyn And they have three more places on the way and they are, like, on fire, right? And I'm actually dying to get them on the show again just to talk about this. But uh, I had a realization recently. I in mean, one of their restaurants, and I looked around, and I'm like, they, didn't spend, they barely spent money on this place. You right. know, they, they put on a coat of paint. Yeah. Ronnie and Chintan, if you're listening, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I mean this in the best possible way. But they don't. That's not where they're making the impact, you know. Right. Uh, their place de Maka is very nice. It's a new building and all that. Right. But they don't go crazy, mm-hmm. you know. And and then I think about, I don't know if you know, I've heard of. I've never been there. The restaurant Michele in San Antonio, Texas. No. It's these two guys, Diego and Rico. One is from Texas, and one is from Mexico. Cool. And they're they're best friends, and. They have actually moved into a brick-and-mortar location, but their original. So they do, it's a Mexican tasting menu. Cool. And Michli, M-I-X-T-L-I, means cloud. And the idea is like it's a cloud that passes over Mexico, right? So I forget how many times a year they do it, but they pick a, an area of Mexico. They do tons of research on the food of that area, and then they do a tasting menu based on that. So it, that's how it changes periodically, they opened that restaurant in an abandoned railway car cool. for fifteen thousand dollars. Wow, because they had both grown up with not much money, mm-hmm. they had both been in debt. One of them had had their car repossessed at one point, they were unwilling to take on any debt. Mm-hmm. And when they first opened, like one of their cooking surfaces was a hot plate from Walmart, literally. Okay, they had no debt, they were in the black. After a right couple away. of weeks of search, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and they are huge there. They are huge, and they, I think they may made. I don't want to say what they've won or not won, but they've gotten a lot of national attention. One of them had a them. had a like a, was on an episode of Padma's television show. Oh, cool. Like they've done great, right? I don't think it's essential. This is the thing. Like it used to be, right? But I think the public has gotten past at least in a place like Miami, a place like you know in a big mm-hmm. in a, in a in a big progressive city where you know people have kind of kept up with the times, right. I don't I go back to what Alex said. They just want the stuff. Mm-hmm. so if you if you have a staff that knows how to take care of them and you have great food and you have a good vibe, right? I don't think you need the build out like that. I think 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 people will accept. I'm not saying you can just go into a garage and do nothing. Right. But I don't think, you know, you need to bring on a a named designer and and have all this custom-made stuff. I I think, and I think that's exciting,
3: you know? I think it's, uh, so I look at Miami because obviously I know it super well. There's like two groups of people. One group really loves all that stuff the sexy fishes of the world, the big box restaurants that are like millions of dollars and smoke and mirror and like... Nightclubs with food. Pretty much. And they love that shit. And that's where they want to go. And they want to pay a thousand bucks for a shitty steak. And they want to do all that stuff. And that's totally fine. Those are not my clients.
0: Right. No, I've been using that phrase, by the way, for decades. NWF, nightclubs with food. It's a legitimate term.
3: It is 100%. And Miami is like, I don't know. I don't like know about other places, but Miami's got so many of those. Oh, sure. Just so yeah. fucking, and I, they just, when people like it's a new press release out and a new like uh, copy and paste article about the, the press release to like a piece of thing that hit the internet and just like what this restaurant is, it's all like, it's the restaurant it's a nightclub. It's a nightclub. They have food. Strip clubs also have food. You know, like it's not necessarily the same, you know, like and then there's another portion of people that I think the way that Miami has grown over the last like 30 years when it comes to food, like, um, that really, really, really appreciate what a lot of people in Miami are doing, right? Like what people like the food that Norman was cooking and like Douglas and Michelle and how they kind of like paved the way. I think like there's a lot of people now that really care about the smaller restaurants that, they just want the stuff that's really good. Yeah. You know. And that's why you don't need the super fancy build-outs because people are going to come if the food is good. And there's I think there's a lot of places in Miami that are like that now as opposed to before there wasn't so many.
0: Well, there's also uh, there's 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 cachet in that, right? Like if you can pull it off with style, then you're the coolest you're the coolest kid in the class, right? Agreed. If if you're able to do something on a shoestring and make it quality. Right. But it's in a place that, you know, has like a, one light bulb in the middle of the room right. or whatever you're doing or it's all lit by whatever you're doing. Right. Or it's in a space where well, you it's
3: didn't... like how uh, Ludo also had, Ludo? Um, yeah. you know, Petit uh, Tois, Right. Or
0: Twomek. Uh, yeah.
3: Petit Tois was placed next door. Yeah. With like the best omelet I've ever had. It's a cool place. Yeah, it was just, it's just the that... least
0: LA restaurant in LA.
3: I mean, it's so <laughs> fucking good, though, man. Like, the... it's great, but
0: it's the heaviest meal. In I mean, it's when I first true. went there, I'm like, I cannot believe I'm gonna about to walk out, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna be in LA.
3: And it was just, I mean, that was an incredible meal. But again, that's like a small shopping plaza, you know? Yeah, I think that's a direction that Miami has gone into because I don't. I think it used to be like that. No. You know? I mean, when I
0: was growing up here, I don't even know if it was the same for you, but when I was growing up here, Christie's. Oh, man. Christie's is still prime there. Rib, prime rib and Caesar salad. Christie's is still there. The Forge on Miami Beach. Not uh, There was a place called, uh, not Calliope, but something like that, over in, uh, I can't remember the name now, in the Gables, mm. near Miracle Mile, but off Miracle Mile. Anyway, you know, there were like three or four, they were all... A lot of them were French, yeah. you know, and that or was Or Steakhouse. Where, and that's where you went before the prom or that's where your parents <laughs> took you, you know, like but there was nothing cool.
3: There was nothing cool. Yeah, I mean Normans was like the coolest. Yeah. Thing, you know, and then obviously Chef Allen's. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There was like it was just there was just a few. Now yeah. there's like a lot, and that's great. I mean, that's good for us and like uh the development of food in the city and like just more people who just want the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like incredibly important because, again, I, I always talk about area because that was the most like vivid memory I have of like just not, we really had nothing at that point and just like re-sanding the tables that we had, re-sanding the bar top. We had a bunch of old equipment, saute pans, whatever. And it, thankfully, it worked out after a while, um, but it still took time. And it was like, and And now it's just you see like that all these big box restaurants from everywhere all over the place, locally and from not uh local people just like continue to pop up and you walk in there you're like, "What the this is one fucking huge two. How the fuck did we afford this thing? like this is crazy, you know so I don't know I'd like I, I, I always tend to um like the smaller the restaurant and just like that, that's really where I'd prefer to eat. Always, I think a lot of chefs would probably agree.
0: Well, you know, it's funny living in New York, right? Where real estate is so crazy. Right. I, I was I was just in Chicago, where my book is set. I was there for the day of, for the publication day, and I did an interview. And someone said to me, "What do you think? How do you like?" A journalist asked me, "How do you like the Chicago food scene?" And I said, "I absolutely love it." I said, "But as with many cities, I constantly." You know i walk into restaurants here and i almost have like agoraphobia you know i'm like this is so big right i mean we have a few places like that in new york but not many yeah you know and i live in brooklyn and the brooklyn food scene is amazing and it's like 30 40 seat restaurants you know right and a lot of them are diy you know like they were built by the chef owners you Mm -hmm. know or maybe their parents came and helped you know it's it's uh yeah, it's interesting where we are. Can I ask about uh, Ariette though? I, sure. I You know, I look at your menu once in a while online, mm-hmm. and I, I was just saying that what was inconceivable when I was growing up. Right? right? There's stuff on that menu. If you would, first of all, I wanted to know what it was. <laughs> when I was a kid, no, but like venison tartare. Yeah, yeah. Like I see that on a menu in the town where I grew up or the city where I grew up, and I'm like, how can he sell that? He, you know, you have the duck press, mm. right? Was were these hard sells stuff like that when you first opened your doors mm-hmm. or was there enough of a baked in market for that already that that was OK? I think uh, strangely, I don't know about strangely,
3: but like we kind of became known for keeping it a little weird, um, you know, like serving squab still with the foot on in a Pithivier, like the whole thing. and um,
0: So you have trust from your customers.
3: It took a while, but, like, that really is why we can keep it weird. I don't think it's weird, but people think That's it's weird. That's how it lands. Yeah. yeah, And, um, you know, like, after a while, it just became kind of like what we were known for. And, you know, I remember when we opened and we had the foie dish. Now we have, like, three foie dishes on the menu. Like, And, and before it was like, oh, you know, no one's going to order that. Especially, like, being in the Grove, right? Like, being in the Grove, people were like, oh, people in the Grove don't want that. It's like, well gonna see i mean i don't know and I, I think a lot of that had to do with like it's just like if if i didn't take all this risk to get here and be like i'm just gonna do what everyone else is doing why the fuck would i do it to begin with so that's why it was like we're gonna try and if people don't like it then i guess we'll have to reassess but people liked it you know like the uh, venison tartare this is like its third iteration on the menu like we we opened with that shit on the menu um you know, and it was just like an evolution all the time. We had calves liver on the menu for a while. That was inspired by Marco Pierre white's calves liver dish. And it's just like, it sold pretty well. Like, you know, I just like, even if I would sell just four or five a night, I'm like, that's pretty shocking. You know, frog legs too. We did that. We did a frog leg croquette for a while. People loved it. It's just like all the time. I'm like, if you don't try, like you're not going to know, you're not going to know. And I, I, I always tell my guys all the time when they're like, you know, I don't know, if people are gonna order this, whatever. Fuck it,
0: try it. Who cares? Like, you know, give or send stuff out just so people can not
3: expand really.
1: their
0: horizons. I mean, oh
3: yeah, for like if they don't order it, send it to them anyways.
1: Yeah, that kind yeah, of no,
3: thing
0: f- for sure all the time. You know, like I. Um, but you 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 send the more kind of exotic or always yeah,
3: and it's always like and also like the original foie dish that's on the menu was built for. Like the Cuban person that has no idea what the fuck that is, that's not going to order because they don't want to know because they don't know what it is. And then when they try it, they're like, wow, this is delicious because it's it's done in a way that's incredibly relatable to the city, to myself, to them, to just like Miami in general. And then when they have it, like, wow, that was delicious. What is that? I'm like, it's What's foie? Okay. Then we get into this whole conversation like, oh, but you need to try this and you should try that. And, you know. And then it just, like, it would start taking, like, more steps of just, like, being willing to try stuff. Yeah. And I think that's really why that menu has always evolved into a place that's like, where can we go now? Like, let's, the duck press was actually a super hard sell at the beginning. And it was like, um, you know, I had been thinking about it for years. I had always wanted to do that. And um, I'm just, like, obsessed with, like, just the history behind it. And you're, like,
0: you're like a closet Frenchie super.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, obsessed with like the, the history behind it yeah. and how like, just like old school and like weird. Yeah. And I love that. And, um, like, can we make it our own? Can we make it Miami? <clears throat> can we totally change how this is done? And then I went through like a bunch of testing for it. Um, and then I, uh, put it on the menu somewhat just kind of verbally but we spent a ton of money like you know this is back when we didn't have a ton of money buying a duck press and i made a custom cart and you know we bought special wedgewood plates for it and, like this whole thing and i just wanted it to be like you know you can have this like super like chill cool experience like listening to celia cruz and then hip-hop and then like weird blues and all this like in this very dark room that's super loud But then also you get this super refined But also very Miami experience at the end of it And then I became friends with Ryan in DC That has an amazing duck press also um, And we just started shooting the shit And then I went up to DC and I hung out with him And we talked about the duck press a lot um, He did it for me and we talked through it some more And that's again creation through collaboration And just like really saying like Hey I don't know it all like, I would love to learn from you. Like, can we trade ideas and thoughts or whatever? And uh, and it, it's just like every week it got better and got better. And then we just put it on the menu and said, we're just going to do two a night. At this point, we only had like, I don't know, 21 ducks hanging to dry. We're like, shit, sure, there'll be plenty. Now we have like 140
0: ducks hanging at one time.
3: Really? Yeah. Because like on any well, you've
0: given, made it a signature thing it's on your website you know it's
3: it's well it just kind of like then we started selling out every night yeah and you're like all right so now we could do like four and then we would sell out every night and then we, now we do five and then we'd sell out every night and then we'd do eight you know and then it just kind of became a thing and um I love that it became a thing because so many people were like that shit'll never work and I'm like but have you tried have you given the guest a chance it's always like Miami's not ready for it. why aren't they ready you're not ready for it you're not ready to do it. That's the reality. You're not willing to take the risk to do it. So just like, fuck, just fucking try, man. Like, that was always my biggest thing. Through. Like, people aren't ready for it. I, maybe you're not ready for it. I don't know.
0: I just realized something. I think you're like the perfect messenger for this stuff. Because you're from here. Yeah. You're of Cuban descent. Mm-hmm. You've trained with, you know, at, at least one Florida legend. Two. Two. I mean, Schwartz, you know, oh, those, right. Schwartz, Schwartz sorry, will say he's a legend. I'm not sure. <laughs> Jerry's still say up. It? Okay. <laughs> I mean, anyway, but you, um, uh, you know, you, you, you know how to talk to people here. You're not like some guy who came down from New York right. to like show, you know, show the yokels how it's done. Right. right? I mean, like the, you are able to, you can, when somebody expresses hesitation or a doubt, you can, you can read them. Like yeah. you know, kind of, you get a vibe, and you can probably tailor how you sell it to them. I don't mean sell it in a, in a mercenary way. No, I like get how it. you convey it to them. You can probably, like, in an instant, be like, "Oh, I know the, I, I know how to talk to this person." 100, percent right? It's also, and it's, I think that, I think that's part of the reason you've been able to make that work. But it's also like I
3: was so, I like just exhausted, exhausted about hearing like food in. Chicago's great. It is great. Food in New York is great. It is great. Food in Nashville's great. Food in LA is great. The Miami's like, no. Yeah. Fuck off. The food here is fucking great. You just need to take the time. Right? And I think from like the chef perspective, a lot of people did like a lot of great things and they paved the way for us. Like they really did. They opened the door completely. Look, when Pub Belly opened and Jose Mandin was doing what he was doing, he absolutely crushed it right and like that was a restaurant that I think will forever change Miami it will forever change Miami because people were going there it was a lot like animal in a lot of ways you know like people were going there and eating all kinds of shit that people were like people never eat and is the one who really started doing that first yeah you know all I did was continue that you know and it's, it's always that continued conversations like well that's never gonna work I just feel like you're fucking scared man you know and and that's something that forever it's like it is risky for sure like the uh the guy i worked for before was not a huge risk taker but he was like incredibly talented like his food was lights out it's like just like let's just take a risk like let's just try something different you know and it was like no okay well it's fine and that's really like always when i said you know i want to open my own place i want to open my own place i want to open my place cuz i just want to stop fucking listening to people i just want to just like do it
0: but and- what you're talking the attitude you're describing is the, is this is how things have always changed you know all all, all the um like all the guys of the nouvelle cuisine movement in France, right when they broke away from oh, the yeah. classic French dishes, they didn't get any attention. Oh, these people who are like legend, like Paul public- these people who are legends now, they didn't get any love when they from the media when they started. They weren't winning awards, right. you know. They weren't getting stars, and then people came around, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, all these legends that we talk about, like. Um, you know like like uh jeremiah tower and jonathan waxman and and alfred port like when these people first started you know they were like the old guard was like what are these people doing that's not right. that's not food you know it's like when parents go that's not mu- you know that ro- that's not music you know when they hear rock and roll well, well, but but every it's always and i'm not just blowing smoke at you but it's always been people who are willing to take the risk you know i, I remember uh reading uh, Larry Forgione book,
3: and he did this like uh, sauce that was finished with duck cracklings, uh-huh. and I'm like, fascinating. This is amazing. This is not new. This is not like a new thing. This has been done. I just why don't we see this more? I remember trying it, <coughs> and you know, like I had uh, obviously I'm not Larry Forgione, so like dealing with like going working through it, and, like maybe thinking how he thought, and then serving it to some guests, and like oh, that was a little weird. And then I remember changing that sauce somewhat reading a veterinary book and um he had a duck dish he had a duck sauce and i'm like well what if these two things got married together and then working through that again this is not like me reinventing the wheel this wheel already exists someone's already done it and these are two absolute fucking legends right and the dish was a it was Delicious. This was way before the duck press. This was like because <laughs> can 'cause can't can't do it twice on a menu. So like this was like year three or something. This area was not super busy, but picking up so it was better. It was such an amazing dish, right? And it was like um and I remember talking to people about it and they were just kinda like, I don't know, it sounds kinda weird. I'm like, Yeah, but it's like it's been done already. Like these obviously these two fucking guys know what they're talking about, right? Yeah, right. Like so we just tried it a little bit different. I remember serving it to be like, wow, that's amazing. That dish lived on the menu probably for like eight or nine months. But it's like stuff like that that gave me faith. I remember. So the foie dish that has been like our signature dish since the day that we opened, it was, I remember reading an old Cuban cookbook and then reading one of Norman's books. And then it was like this, there was a connection between both recipes. I'm like, oh, that's super interesting. And then I was like, you know, then that, I remember I have a notebook that's, old and I was like I remember reading it just recently like all my thoughts about this thing i like man this is like really in depth for me but I was like this is pretty cool so I was like reading all the thoughts through it and like how Norman thought about that dish and then like the classic Cuban dish and like how can these things get married together and then it ended up being a dish that I presented to Norman when I worked for him and I remember he looked at me and was like man this is delicious but we already have a foie dish and I'm like that's fine. I respect that. So, it, like, it obviously never went on the menu, thankfully, because then I just put it on mine. And I was like, I don't know, like, I think food, when you when you read a lot of, like, old school food writing, a lot of things have been done uh, uh, over and over and over again. You know? It's all about how you apply it to, like, your knowledge and, like, how you want your guests to dine, you know? And I wanted I wanted our guests to understand that, like, we're not scared to take a risk. I also want you to understand that I understand you. We're both from here, right? You know, like the ones that are from here and like, maybe not into like whatever, like you live in Kendall or you live in South Miami and like you're, you know, progressive Cuban American food isn't really a thing that you even know what that means. It's cool. Let's talk about it. Let's work through it. And I, that was like, I think that's why like I look at area like every time I walk into that space, it's like home for me. Cause that's really where I understood what my mission was. And not everything has to be for everybody. No. You, know? you you don't have to be everything to everybody. You just have to be something to a small group of people.
0: Enough people to support right. you, know to keep you doing what you like to do. You know, there was a chef, uh, he's he's up in Connecticut now, but there was a guy named Gabe McMacken in, in New York, uh, probably a contemporary of yours, I would guess. Uh, he had a restaurant called The Finch in Brooklyn, and he... Did very he had a Michelin star and he did very um, slightly avant garde stuff, you know, delicious. And you know, he said once in a while somebody would you know walk in, and 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 you know they probably wanted a burger or salad, you know, just and he didn't do that. He didn't have the roast chicken, you know. He didn't have the the burger. He didn't have you know the garden salad, you know. And and he you know and he and and we were talking and 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 one of us said to the other. They came to the wrong place, right? you know they came to the wrong place hundred percent
3: that's okay it's um and the amount of times that people would be like, you know, the guest would like to do, and you know, man, I remember the days that I would be like working saute like in the because area, area's completely open, you know, like you could see all of my facial expressions and pretty much hear everything I say, you know, the guest wants to do no, can't do that. this is the wrong place. the menu is online a hundred percent we also have an instagram you can see all the things that we're doing like this isn't like just have it your way we had a we had and have a mission you know like if you're a dentist i don't go in there and and tell you how to do your job it's just like it the reality is i wanted that restaurant to mean more you know i wanted it to mean more to the community and man certain days that i think about that it just make me like Man this has been a fucking wild ride uh, When we won the star uh, Whatever Two years ago I remember like just, I just Getting up and going for a jog I was Jogging around Or I going to Tropical Park I used to do the stands Jog around whatever And people stopped me like Hey man we're so proud of you Like who the fuck are you I don't even know who you are <laughs> And it's like man Thank you so much for doing what you're doing Like it just blew me away Because like A lot of times when you're working, and you're on the grind, you don't really realize that there's people watching and listening. Oh yeah, and because you know we we do our podcast,
0: and it's like people are like, "Hey, you remember when you said that?" I'm like, "Absolutely not. I don't remember that I said that." I believe, I just quoted you by the way. And I don't know if you heard it. I, no. I was interviewing Mark Vetri. I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I I, quote, you. I quoted you.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I just like the when people do stuff so, and like they're listening and they're watching and like. When P- I, you know, this space that we're sitting in is, does the highest volume in the whole company. Like, it do 600 people on a Sunday. And it's like, the amount of people are like, man, I love Chugs. And I'm like, that's crazy. It started as a pop-up while I was in New York, eating at Frankel's, right? Frankel's, it's a deli. Um, Where? And I don't remember. I'm really bad that's with okay. directions in New York. New York, everything is... That's okay. Everything is a subway away, apparently. Um, but just like... And then I get a call like, hey, you want to do this pop-up? And then now it's like people come here. I've seen kids grow up like from like one-year-old to now they're like four, you know? So,
0: wait, what did you quote me with Vetri? What happened there? Uh, well, I don't want to get us in trouble. But no, okay. was, it was, first of all, I have, if you go listen to it, I'm going to apologize for some t- Sometimes I randomly have trouble calling up names of people, movies. Whatever. So I had seen a clip on your Instagram, I think, maybe, I can't remember, but it was, we were talking about the whole idea of, of how you can no longer have um, an unpaid stage, right? Oh, right, right. And you had, I forget who you were interviewing, uh-huh. but you made the point that um, you were like, look, you can go and, I'm paraphrasing, but, sure. uh, you know, you can go to cooking school, yeah, yeah, and shell out tens of thousands of dollars Correct. to learn, yep, okay, or you can go get a job in a kitchen mm-hmm. someone takes you under their wing, right they teach you the craft, they invest in you, mm-hmm. okay, up until x number of years ago you you may not you don't get paid for that, right. but you're not shelling out tens of thousands of dollars on cooking school, right. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be an extremely compelling argument. No one has yet been able to tell me how that's incorrect. And I said that to Mark. I said, "What's the difference?" And he goes, "There's no difference, right. you know." And because he was talking about how he came up, and then we said, "You know, he can't do this anymore." Right. And then I said, "I think I probably said like, I don't know. You know, I know that's what everyone's supposed to say now, right? But I don't think I really have a problem with it."
3: Like, I mean, I don't know. When I look at I mean, so you have to live the majority of your life in debt for something you're probably not going to end up doing.
0: Or won't term. be lucrative unless you're in the very, 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 very top.
3: Right. Yeah. I'd, I'd prefer to go get a job making 10 bucks an hour learning how to do things the right way from a young age. But again, that's just me. Yeah, it's just an opinion. It's an opinion. And, you know, everyone's like they poo-poo that all day and like it's so abusive. And I'm like, what's abusive is how the system has trained us to go to college and then live our lives with debt for a long time, especially in the cooking world. Like in the the cooking world, I mean, I remember because I went to a small program. Thankfully, I didn't go to like years of culinary school. But it's like, hey, you're going to leave here. You're going to be a sous chef. You're going to make 65 grand a year. Really? You don't even know how to butcher a chicken, kid. What do you mean? Right. I'm not going to pay you. What do you mean? I don't understand. Like, okay, can you
0: break down that fish? No? So explain to me how you deserve this job. Now, I will tell you, I know people who went to cookie, I, who who thought that was, for them, it was the perfect way to start, right? That's fine. Yeah. Not everyone can afford it. Not everybody wants the debt if they can't afford it. And you said college generally is sec. Like, you know, I'm putting twins through college right now, God, my you. wife and I. And I will tell you, I, I often jokingly but everyone knows i'm not joking cuz i think the tide's turning on that yeah and and i said you know got you know i say this to my kids and i definitely say it to my wife we're among the last generation who's going to who's going to buy into this notion that kids have to go to college yeah like we are among the last like what we could have bought a house with what we're spending on college yeah, right yeah. and and we're renting still in new york city right yeah. and and it's okay. It's where things are. Yeah. Okay. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be an engineer. You're going to, okay. You got to go to college. Mm -hmm. If you're going to go into marketing, if you're going to go into public relations, if you're going to go, whatever it is, most professions do not require a college education, nor does most of life.
1: Right.
0: And, and, uh, but I hear this more and more from people. And I think that, I'm telling you, 20 years from now, maybe even less, I don't think it's going to be a given. Like, if you don't go to college, you're making a horrible decision. You'll be right. lucky to get a job. I think AI is a much bigger threat to people in the future than not having gone to college.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I just think that the way that the world is changing, it's also like a lot of times people go. There's also different reasons to go to college, right? Like, if you're going to be a lawyer, a doctor, like, yeah. That's 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 a whole thing, right? But like when you go in, you don't really know what you want to do, and you just kind of like Neander for years, and then you leave there. And I'm speaking from experience. You leave there with a fuck ton of debt, and then you're starting life pretty much at the negative. It's like, what did I just do? It's it's really like a, I think it's a little bit of a broader conversation now than it used to be. because like back in the day, you went to high school, then you went to college. Yeah, and if you said I'm not going to college, right, your you parents were, were like, are you out of your mind? You are a pariah. If yeah. you said I'm not going to college, it means you're an absolute fuck. You are a fuck up. It wasn't even a question. Right. So, it's just I don't know. And and I think for in the in the food world, man, we get a lot of kids all the time that have never been to culinary school and um, want to learn and it's like, cool. I mean, we're going to give you an opportunity. You're going to start at the absolute bottom. Um You know, but like the real hungry ones, like they want to, they want to get on the line. They're going to stay after their shift ends and they're going to watch how the line works or they're going to talk to people and they're going to take notes. And it's like, I fucking love that because that's how I was. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's cool. Like, oh, your shift starts at four. I remember I had a, this was the absolute worst job. One of the worst jobs I ever had because we were next to a theater. So we would do like a theater menu for two hours. And my station had a half wood grilled chicken that, just, you know, I had to butcher like four cases of chicken a day. And I was like, oh, so you get into work at 3 30, we open at 5. I'm like, there's no way. I'm gonna set up my entire station and break down four cases of chicken properly. So I'd have to get to work at like fucking twelve thirty. Whatever. That was part of the gig. And it's like, but I'll tell you right now, I will smoke people butch- butchering chicken right now. But that's because of years of doing that. You know, and it's like Everything is like a lesson and it's a lesson learned and it's very important. Like there's stuff that I do now that I'm like, man, I learned that when I was like 22 or 23 in a random kitchen, flipping eggs, like whatever it was. And I think the value in that, it's not it's not as important as it used to be, I don't think. And I, and I worry about like the evolution of where cooking will go because there's less and less people that really love it like how they used to, I think.
0: Oh, well. I guess. I know people, this isn't unique to your industry, right? This is everywhere. People want to advance more quickly. I mean, mm-hmm. here again, you asked me what I've seen change. When I first got around the, your industry, it was normal for somebody to spend like four or five years working for like a John George or a Danielle or whoever, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: As, and, and maybe they'd leave when they were sous chef. And then they'd go work for someone else like that. Yeah for another four or five years and then they start thinking about okay maybe now i'm ready to be the chef you know and for a long time now like i hear it all the time i want to have a restaurant by the time i'm 30 Mm. you know i want to have my own restaurant by the time i'm 30 that was not the way people spoke right and i'm i always say this things change and we all have to accept it you're not going to change the way things are moving it's just going to happen uh but that's definitely different. But for younger cooks, I think they should recognize, especially with all the people who left the industry during COVID, mm-hmm. if you come in, if you're driven, if you are a hard worker, if you're a little patient, you know, don't start asking for a promotion after three weeks. Right. There is so much opportunity to rise up through the ranks today. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always say... Uh, to me, if I were going to boil it down, all a chef is looking for from an employee is someone who's going to make their life easier. yeah, I think that is the, that applies to the whole everything, right? Mm-hmm. And if you are that person who shows initiative, who takes the time to get really good at whatever the tasks are that you've been assigned at the moment, who shows up on time you know shows up on time, yeah yeah, God forbid. That was Bourdain's big thing. That was the non-starter. You know, if you, you were late. Gotta, I mean,
3: it's like, like I never – I never – I just – I'm only two minutes late. Right. I don't – you just – you just incriminated yourself. You're
0: you're late. You just said it. You're yeah, late. I know. But I'm only two minutes late. What? Yeah. I don't understand. Yeah. It's just
3: that – those things to me, it's like
0: – I did an employee once who was late all the time. I'm not in a kitchen. I've never been in a – worked in a kitchen. But they were late all the time. And after like the fourth time, I said – Do you know this is like the fourth time you've been late And they go well there have been delays I said well maybe you need to leave earlier And they said well I know how long It takes me to get to work And I said I don't think you do It was like a Seinfeld thing I'm like I don't think you do (laughs) <laughs> You've been late four times in ten, you know, in two weeks and ten business days. You've been um, late forty percent of the time. Man, the like clearly dead. whatever subway line you take is subject to delays. Like right. you gotta build that in. Right. I mean, I thought it was the funniest thing. I still I mean, think I thought it was funny at the moment. I still think it's funny. But uh but uh but if you do all those things right, there's always someone in a kitchen who I mean often there's someone in the kitchen who you're like, that person's that person's going up fast. You know, you can tell.
3: Yeah, my, my goal like when I was a young cook was always like, okay, so I'm like the youngest cook in here. So like, how do we outcook everyone else? How do we just like so you got to be a dog. You's got to get here earlier. Your mise en place needs to be tighter. Your station needs to be cleaner. I man, I fucking miss those days just like it was just one station, one thing. <sighs> wow, so amazing. It's just still like I think about it like, man, that was so much fun. It was so great. And it's, um, you know, you still see a good amount of that. It, it, I feel like, I don't know, I, I was lucky to come up in like so many different styles of kitchens. Um, the people around me were always much older and I learned a ton from all of them, uh, good and bad, uh, what to do and what not to do. Um, but it was like, it's just that thing of like running your own station. It's just, and then, you know, the team thing, it's just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So let me, like, I have to say, like, what do you think has been the conversation with chefs over the last 25 years, the one that sticks out the most? Maybe the one that, like, you actually.
0: You mean, like, an interview I've done? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, the one that I've. I interrupt. The one that I've actually. You said what's been the one that stands out the like most? The one that, the one that, that, that just... you actually.
3: Like the one that has like hit you the most. Like maybe um I don't know, that had like a I don't know, maybe an effect on you, maybe something that stays with you for a long that
0: stayed with you for a long time. Personally. Yeah. Uh I mean a cup a couple come to mind if that's okay. One hmm. is uh I had an amazing interview with Patrick O'Connell at the end oh, at Little Washington. What a legend. And you know, my, my last book, uh, at some point I decided I was going to mainly focus on New York, L.A. and the Bay Area. This book I wrote about the American chef explosion in the 70s and 80s. And i had had a great interview with Patrick, and uh, I just, you know, I didn't, he wasn't going to be a major character in the book because of what I was focusing on. And he's had his whole career just outside of dc like right. that he's self-taught that's mm-hmm. that's the only restaurant he's worked in right and i felt really bad about it and i went um 2019 june i think i went uh with a press group uh to the Inn at little washington i'd never been there and i i did an interview with him and it's the first time i'd met him in person and First of all that interview is one of my listeners favorite interviews it's just he's so smart in the way he, his philosophies of management and and what he's done there and and all of that but at the end of the interview i apologized to him and he could not have been more gracious he was so perfect because i i told him what i you know i said we had this phone interview he goes i remember and i said i did the book and i didn't really have anywhere to put you and mm. i said that's the one thing i regret i said uh i said i wish i said i wish i could have done better by you and he goes oh he goes he goes he really sounded like he felt for me mm. and he goes well we're here now <laughs> and it was so perfect it was so perfect and i've you know i'm in touch with him and uh that was great uh uh Oh, I'll tell you one moment. This is a great moment. And I didn't realize how great it was until I listened back to it. It's a Danish chef named Bo Beck. I don't know how many listeners will know who he is, but I have his book. Important guy, very talented. Uh, and I've interviewed him a couple of times. And one time uh, we interviewed at the Philly Chef Conference in the lobby of the hotel we were in. It was maybe, that was the second time. So I'd already done the big biographical interview. And Bo sounds very intense, you know, he has a very deep voice, And he, you know, and actually the first time I had him on, I got, I got emails after from people going like, is that guy a jerk? Or I'm like, no, he's the best. But they didn't have the benefit of sitting with him in a room. Right. And his voice, he sounds a little severe, you know, cause he's Danish. I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> that's just how he sounds, but he's a sweetheart, great guy. And he also, you know, he has a dark beard and he looks, you know, shaved head. And right. So we're sitting in this lobby and we're having an interview. And I forget what it was, but he asked me something and I gave him this response that it went, I said, well, it kind of goes back to my childhood. And, you know, I just feel very self conscious. Uh, I think I might have been talking about this speech I'd made at a dinner we were all part of a few nights earlier. Mm. And he starts going on about himself and his parents but then he brought it back to me and he was like i'm trying to tell you that these things are like stones in your pocket and they will they weigh you down and you need to get rid of these stones you know he was giving me almost like i'm sure i'm older than he is but he was basically giving me like what i consider like paternal advice you know saying like let go of that stuff let go of that stuff. And in the moment, you know, we're in a hotel lobby. I'm going interview to interview as I do at these events. Right. And I, it didn't hit me. And then, you know, I when I went to edit it and I heard it back, I was like, oh my God. Like he really opened up in service of me. You right. know? That, that was great. That was amazing. On a personal level, that's pretty high up there. Cool. Um, and then just the I mean, you know, you said some nice things at the beginning of this interview. I stumbled into your world. I, I never intended to be a food writer. You know, like I said, I was trying to be a screenwriter. You know, I do love your industry. Um, some of the people, just the fact of them being willing to give me the hour, you know, yeah. is that alone is, is is really moving to me. And then very broadly, just... I don't know, just the amount of trust people have given. You know, I think I have a decent reputation now and people tend to come in pretty open, you yeah. know, and that that's very meaningful to me. But I think that thing with Bo, I'm sure there have been others where people have offered me something like that, but I was very touched by that, especially from someone who, you know, I've only met in person maybe th- twice in my life. Right. You know?
3: I, I think the... Um, the the trust portion I talk to nick about this like a lot when it comes to like food writing just talk about like on a local level semi-national level whatever there's a lot of like stuff that gets written that isn't someone that's trying to learn about a person right and i that's a lot of times like we talk about that. Like, that's why we started our podcast right because i wanted industry people and chefs and just people in general like to to get a real feeling of like what, why is this person doing what they're doing? Yeah. How, what got them here? Also see them in a different environment that's just not like a kitchen or a restaurant or whatever. And I think people that are willing to take the time to understand people's story for our industry, like it, it gains a lot of trust because a lot of people, you know, obviously the world of chefs has changed dramatically over the last 20 years, right? Like yeah. they went from, being the help in the back, to then being the celebrity, then to being on TV, next Food Network star, then, you know, like, BBC. I don't know. Yeah. It's just been, like, it's, like, all all over the place, right? A lot of these people are just people that really love their craft. And they want to talk about it. And, like, they want to talk about their story and why they do what they do. And I think that that's something that's pretty amazing that you've done. Like, be a voice for a lot of people. Like, why is it, like, why do I love what... Tony Bourdain did for chefs in general. Because he gave us like the feeling and basically said, it's cool to be yourself. Fuck everybody else. And if they don't like it, whatever. And that to me is like, I'll carry that with me forever. And it's like when people are willing to listen and they they're willing to understand our stories, I think that, you know, that's why it's it's amazing what you've done. Right? It's 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 really just like one of those things that Man, like, I don't know how much you read. I, just not Miami. There's a lot of places, like local media, like, they don't care. It's copy and paste from a press release, and there's no, like, actual information about, like, what's happening here? What is the food? What is the story? Like, let's get in depth, you know? It's not a lot of that shit. And it's, like, getting to know people. Like, that shit is, like, it's such a fast world now. You know, like, people want information, like, the one, two points, one, two, and three, cool. It's got it's a lot of, like, fancy things a lot of gold cool I'll go make a reservation for Friday it's nothing about real food nothing about a story nothing about. and I think it's just it's incredibly valuable like what you provided just background you know like understanding it's just like huge you know we uh, touched on Vetri a couple times like man I had heard stories about Mark Vetri forever you know Uh, because I worked for Schwartz and they're super tight yep um, I've just, like, admired his food from afar for such a long time that I had the opportunity to go. And so, like, I knew his story, you know, and I had read a lot of his stuff and a lot of his work. I took the time, or whatever. And I remember when I went there, because I knew him, his story and his food so well, and then I ate there. Fuck, it blew my mind. Like, it's just, like, just so incredibly, like, simple but meaningful and, like, thoughtful. And then he came, and I'm not, like, a, I don't get starstruck ever. Like, it's not my thing. Then he came and he sat next to us and he talked to us for like half an hour. Like, fuck me, man. Not only is like all the stories true. You are cool as fuck. He's a real one. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a guy. But it's like, it's just like when you add context to people's stories, you know, like it just I think it makes food and restaurants so much more meaningful. It's not just I'm trying to go somewhere to eat something, even though, you know, it's I know it's just that, but it's like, it is just so much more for a lot of people, I think.
0: Well, thank you for all that. I, I will say, I hear what you said about the media all the time. Mm. Um, you know, these people who have jobs with websites, or yeah, yeah. it's it's not really their fault. You know, they're under a lot of pressure. A thousand percent, to, I get to, it. To turn in stuff quickly, to also be, you know, you were talking about all the hats a chef has to wear. It's... I think they would love to be able to do long form interviews, a lot of them, and they just don't have a place to do it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember when I used to have a blog and I would do these interviews, you know, and they were like 1200 words and people would started saying to me like, Oh, you do long form. I'm like long form. <laughs> 1200 words. Like, well, where are we headed? I love how Nick laughs. At that. <laughs> but where are we going? You know? And yeah. I, now we're there, you know, yeah. now we're there. Cause like, Who's going to read that much? Well, it's just,
3: it's the way the world has changed. Yeah, you know, it's the way the world the way that we consume information. It needs to be fast. It needs to be pretty. Yeah, you need to double click it, it. Needs to have a little heart on it. All those things. Again, it's just the way that the world has changed, and that's what meaningful restaurants and meaningful stories behind food. Like I, the reason why, um, like a restaurant is so important to me. It's the last place you could like sit here and have a conversation over a meal and talk with people you know and, and it's like i don't know i it worries me so much about the future i'm glad i'm like in this generation right now oh, yeah. cuz i worry about like the next one when it comes to food so it's like um i do that's i I've, I've had plenty of hurdles that's going to be theirs uh, and i think that <laughs> i just it's it's so important and then when you start to get to know people and stories it's pretty fascinating to me and i don't know i guess we'll have to see how it all goes
0: uh, yes. <laughs> right. I also am glad to be of my generation. <laughs> right. I mean, the things I, I'm so glad I'm not, I don't have to be dating at this time. You know, I, it's, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, the, it's crazy, the, the
3: world, the world itself is just like, and I just, I can only talk about Miami, right? Cause from here, I've only left here for four years one time and Miami has changed so much. Um, a lot for good, a lot for bad. Um, but you know when you love a place, like you just, it just is what what it is, you know. Yeah. And it's like we were just talking about the Grove when this all started, and like how much this has changed, and like exponential growth of Miami. Like we're just, you know, like all we're just keep on going yes. west, and like how it just keeps on getting bigger. And I don't know, man. It, it's um, I really feel like, uh, especially restaurants, just because I feel like restaurants are always a thing that start neighborhoods. We're going to start seeing them change more and more over the next like two decades, I feel.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully you and others will resist. No, I think we will. <laughs> I think that there's like
3: a really strong group of people here that they're just really about their business, you know, really about putting out great food. And and I think we just see it every single day. It's going to continue to
0: grow. Well, I up. also think that hospitality is a real piece of restaurants like the ones you have you know and i don't think technology is a thing but um i don't think that human touch will ever be completely out of it um and before we end i just want to say as someone who grew up here thank you for being one of the people who you know is is the reason why there's restaurants here that Thanks. i really want to go to when i Thanks. come down you know to come i come down with a list now um, i mean i haven't been here since pre-covid uh so your list is pretty long it list is long what's oh, on your list I'd love to well, know all of your places. Thanks. <laughs> That's good. You know, Maddie's Maddie's, which I went to last night. It's amazing, right? Yeah, it's great. Um, and I don't want to name too many cause then I'll leave out places, but, right. um, uh, yeah, but it's, uh, I'm going to, I'm, well, I'm doing an event with him, but I'm eating at Brad, uh, Kilgore's, I'm eating at Marigold's tomorrow. Oh. Um, you know, I've never had Brad's food, mm. you know? Uh, so, uh, yeah, but it's you know I got to come down again uh, just to make the rounds. Uh, uh, but anyway, I appreciate what you're doing here. I think it's great. I love your show. Oh, uh,
3: people actually listen to this thing. Well, you knew that. <laughs> it's just still uh, we still say that. <laughs> Nick still doesn't know how to work that thing.
1: Well, it's I guess are still struggling. <laughs> so good. I mean, I'm I'm
0: I'm almost 300 episodes into my show, wow. and like I'm still startled when somebody. Tells yeah. me, you know, uh, they, and I'm especially startled when it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of used to line cooks now. Cause I think they learn a lot. Yeah. Yeah. For you sure. Know? uh, but every once in a while, someone I really admire will, uh, tell me they're a listener and I'm like, really? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, you would think I'm in my first job, you yeah, know, or crazy. never written a book, you know, like it blows my mind, it
3: blows my mind too.
0: Or sometimes I'll get recognized. I get recognized more often by voice. Oh yeah, Than by face Like I'll be in a restaurant And I'll think someone's eavesdropping But they're just trying to make sure it's me And they'll be like Are you Andrew? And it'll be like a, a cook from somewhere Or a That's chef cool. from somewhere That's happened a few times
3: Yeah it's always uh, I love the fact that there's like Blind cooks that listen to our show too It's pretty wild I mean you know Anything that I could I feel like positively inf- impacts The food community Is like super down for it It's also like We've had some pretty cool people out here Oh God! There it, there it is. Yeah, you figured it out. That's good. What does that mean? Is that is that, uh, that quitting time? No, no, no,
2: that was the 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 effect that I was looking for earlier when oh, Mike was took twenty minutes me for, to figure it out. Yeah, Got it. Yeah. Well, I think we could start to wind down a bit. Yeah, I think so. Um, Nick is back. Look, Nick is back. Nick is back. Uh, apologies for me. I don't know if you caught me cracking up. Uh, COO Brittany Rothwell was making obscene gestures at the front door through oh, the glass. It? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Um, We're such
3: a loving group here at Area Hospitality. It's
2: <laughs> the best. Um. so I don't know uh, for purposes of you using the recording you're good with cutting it off here and then you do oh, a, yeah. some kind of outro absolutely great so uh, what we would normally do which you might already know from listening to the thing is we end on first our parting recommendations so you'll recommend anything at all that you want as long as it's not yours and then we'll shift into shameless plugs where you tell people where to find all of your stuff uh, where to follow you and all that so we'll let you go first unless you want to give us Um, have us give you a little bit of time to think about what you're recommending but you might already have some stuff Uh, in the pocket. No, I'm good. All right, yeah. So, by all means, parting recommendations.
0: (laughs) My parting recommendations are um, athletic brewing non-alcoholic beer. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) My wife, uh, not entirely but recently uh, backed off of alcohol significantly. Amazing. And uh, you know like Samuel Jackson says in pulp fiction my girlfriend's a vegetarian which pretty much makes me a vegetarian. <laughs> so my wife's my wife's cut down on alcohol which means I've cut down on you know I I don't open bottles of wine at home anymore. Right. I'm always on the lookout for non-alcoholic beer that's really good. Mm. Um and Athletic Brewing every one of their diff- every one of the uh beers in their in their line uh I really like We've talked about it on the show, but since I'm here in Miami, I will say I was very impressed by the team at Maddie's restaurant Great. last night. I mean, having grown up here, the level of finesse on the food, the, the, the level of service, uh, the decor, everything, every detail, you know. and even 15, 20 years ago, chef friends I had down here, they could find cooks. Yeah, It was the dining room team they had problems with.
3: Oh yeah yeah. I you know? that I think uh started to cut you off. But I do think that the hospitality portion of Miami has vastly improved. Like the front of the house side. It's a different culture and understanding and I know he referred to Brittany but like Brittany's from Philly what she brought to the table for us was an absolute game changer because I don't I like I didn't know. I'm a chef, so it's like it was uh it
0: was pretty amazing. The last thing I'm going to recommend, uh, you know, there is a feeling out there amongst the industry that the TV show The Bear is the most accurate depiction of a restaurant ever put on TV or film. Do people not say that around here? I mean, you
3: know, I've I've only watched first season.
0: I've heard heard it said, though. Yeah, a lot of people say that. I would agree. Okay, there is a little-known... Largely forgotten movie, I think it's about twenty years old, called Dinner Rush. For the longest time, you could not watch it. There had to be like a rights issue. Uh, it was on, on none of the streamers. Uh, periodically, it would show up on YouTube in its entirety until somebody made them take it down. You know, for copyright infringement. I think it's on Amazon Prime now, but you can watch it now. I love that. It is a movie uh, starring Danny Aiello. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Corbett has a small part. Uh, Sandra Bernhardt has a small part. Uh, Oh, for people who like Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, Mark, the the recently deceased Mark Menendez, who played Hector Salamanca, plays a very annoying art, art dealer in it. But it takes place on one night in a restaurant in lower Manhattan. And it was directed by a guy named Bob Giraldi, who was a very successful commercial director he also directed music videos, including the Michael Jackson Beat It video. Well, that's a big one. But Giraldi owned a—I uh, can't even remember the name of it. He owned a restaurant in Tribeca,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and he filmed that movie in his own restaurant. And it's a generational story. Italian-American father who runs a very traditional restaurant, and his son who's being groomed to take over, who runs the kitchen, who's trying to go be more modern— and, yeah. and take Italian food in a new direction. Push it. And I have never seen a movie that so feels
1: mm.
0: like what a kitchen felt like, what the food looked like, what the dining room feels like. At least at that time, this is the early 2000s, it is pitch perfect. And I'm t- anyone out there who is in the industry, anyone out there who loves restaurants, I'm telling you, dinner rush find it you'll really enjoy it it's also a good movie on top mm. of all that, i think a lot of the restaurant stuff that's been made fails because they just you know a lot of those movies and shows were just like chefs are wild you know like there's yeah. no story mm-hmm. right the movie has a very defined plot <laughs> it's a one night movie which I, I love movies that take place in one day or one night right. i think that's cool
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's almost in real time and uh, I highly recommend it. I think your listeners, I think anyone who listens to you will love that movie. Well, I'm pumped. To Dinner watch rush. That. Yeah.
3: My yeah. parting recommendations? Uh, not as cool as his. Um, so I watched the movie The Reptile. Right? That's what it's called? I think it's what? called just Reptile. Reptile? Yeah. yeah. Super entertaining. Uh, I was shocked that that was actually pretty good. Um. Man, I haven't really eaten anywhere at all, whatsoever. I did just have a really nice meal at Fiola, uh, a couple of really good pastas. That was really nice. Chef, Chef Danny's crushing it.
0: That's the same Fiola as DC. Yes, I've been to the DC one. Those guys are great. Yeah, yeah I like those
3: restaurants. Chef Fabio Trebucci. Yes, He's probably destroying his name, but that's I think how you you should say it. Um, man. I think that's pretty much it man like um yeah i'm gonna end
2: there i think that's all i got cool so uh i'm gonna recommend we've we've referenced brian jordan alvarez before on this podcast Oh yeah. um <laughs> this guy so brian actually i i'm dying to get him on i think he would make a hysterical guest for you oh man so brian jordan alvarez is a an actor and I guess, like, sort of turned Instagram comedian. But just to kind of fill you in a little bit. So he actually was just put, or will be on Time Magazine's list of, like, the 100 most influential or something like that coming up uh, for his Instagram stories, which are all with uh, those, like, funky filters that, you know, do weird stuff to your face. But what he's done is he's attached a different character to each one of these filters. One of them is... Like a maniacal chef who's opening a thousand restaurants, um, but
0: and this is a recurring
1: thing. Yeah, there's that like this, character is recurring. There's this
2: crazy like like Man, arc to all of the characters. It's wild. Like I could, if somebody told me they were just putting them all in a row at a movie theater, I would pay money to go and sit and watch for hours. Uh, but uh, one of those characters has recently started uh, putting out pop songs and. <laughs> Uh, they are now on all the streaming platforms. My, I have been blasting in my car a song called Chicas by TJ Mech, which is one of the characters. Uh, it's all about how all the women in his DMs need to get out of there because his wife looks at his phone. Uh, oh, God. It's fantastic. So anything by Brian Jordan Alvarez that is streaming now on the music things, I would check out. Um, and... If you were a fan of um, uh, The Boy, which oh. uh, Danny Surfer recommended here and we've talked about a few times, there's um, a spinoff called uh, – oh, God. Now I'm blanking on what it's called. It's an Amazon thing. And it's a spin-off. It's like Gen uh, V or something. something. Yeah, Gen yeah. V maybe. Uh, and it's about like – it's not quite as good. But it's fun if you enjoyed the boys. It's a nice, like, hold you over while you wait for the boys to come back.
3: I actually just looked up parting recommendations that I sent you. Okay, great. This was after a couple of drinks while watching football. It was uh, Wingstop is pretty good. Lemon pepper chicken tenders. You did do that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Shout out to Rick Ross. <laughs> yeah, lemon,
3: uh, lemon pepper chicken tenders and the Cajun chicken sandwich.
2: Solid. Man, I, I ordered one of those chicken sandwiches. I thought it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it wasn't that one. It was a different one. But I mean, I don't know. It was, it was pretty good. Maybe the Cajun one's better.
3: Yes. I mean, I was
2: uh, pleasantly surprised. Great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Shameless plugs. Andrew, please shamelessly plug all your stuff.
0: Uh, I mean, I'll keep it brief. My, my big shameless plug, because it's just out, is my new book, The Dish the lives and labor behind one plate of food. I take one dish at a restaurant in Chicago. So if you're a fan of the show, The Bear, it's set in Chicago, my book is in Chicago. And I write, uh, I, I profile all the key people whose lives and work come together in that one plate of food. So in the restaurant, you meet everybody from the dishwasher to the line cook, to the sous chef, to the chef de cuisine, to the chef owners, to the server. Uh, you meet all the farmers whose food uh, is on is on that one dish, uh, which includes a rancher and uh, a winemaker. Uh, and my promise with the book is you'll never look at a restaurant meal the same way again. Yeah, um, it's available everywhere you buy books. And the only other thing, well, you already plugged my podcast. If you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram, ToqueLandAndrew. T O Q U E L A N D. Andrew, and toke spelled that way refers to the old fashioned tall white cylindrical mm-hmm. chef hats, yep. not to the other kind of toke, although I have Toast. no problem with that, yeah. to, to say the least. <laughs> to
2: say the least. That's <laughs> fine. Mike, shameless plugs? Go for it. All the things.
3: I still gotta recommend all my shit. I mean, we've, been, we've done this 80 times all already. The, the <laughs> all
0: the the things. <laughs> all the the things. Ariad and Nave.
2: Skateboard and the Taurus, Chugs amazing. and the
1: Gibson,
0: yeah. all the things. Yeah, all the things. We definitely don't have enough money all to do this on our own. the power <laughs> yeah. scoops and the Miami
3: gets the world, all the things. All the things. Insert solid.
1: All the, <laughs> the, things. <laughs> all the things. All the, the things. Thanks.
2: Shameless plugs for Pankong Podcast. We're Pankong Podcast on all of the social media things. Mm-hmm. Give us all your money at patreon.com slash Dade mag. Um, you can uh, – I still have some magnets. You can go buy magnets <laughs>
1: at the Do store. We store on on magnets.
2: magnets? Um, and uh, what else? Yeah, that's about it. Go to go to a vecino. I'm usually there Mondays and Tuesdays. If I'm not, then too bad. Petey's also there a lot. Perfect so yeah that's it that's all I got nice thank Light. you so much
3: I have a lightning round
2: oh yeah okay perfect well, love that if you're on Patreon you'll hear the lightning round yeah. that is at the uh, on the opposite end of these air horns but uh, for those who don't pay to hear us thank Andrew Andrew thank you for uh, for joining us for this man
0: I'm glad we finally did this man I'm really crazed. glad yeah thank you thanks for having me <laughs> I love
2: that Fuck. stop <laughs>
3: I love that he still doesn't know how to use that thing. <laughs> We've had that for like a year
2: already. Actually, you know what? We I, I do need to put uh, our theme music, so we'll be, it'll be on the other side of this theme All music right, right, bye. Yeah. Yeah, see you later. See you later, everybody. It's fine. This will give you a little time to... Panko Podcast
3: is back. Now, you know how many times I've heard that? Oh, my God, you guys are finally doing it again. I'm like, I know,
2: yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Relax. Everybody. Sorry. Just take it easy. Take a breath. <laughs> Perfect. I actually, like, wrote these questions down. Nice. I know, that's shocking for me.
3: I mean, I was in a car for seven hours yesterday. True. Do we have, like, lightning round music or no?
2: No, I should download some lightning sound effects. Perfect. Just every question gets a lightning.
0: That would be cool.
3: The, so the the idea here is five questions should be quick answers. Usually aren't, but it's fine. So um,
0: I love lightning grounds, by the way.
3: I love this peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Do you like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Yes. There's people that don't. Don't look at me like that. If so, do you think the sandwich needs more jelly or peanut butter? Can I give a trick answer? Sure. Honey instead of jelly. This is weird. Because, okay, honey instead, of, that's, you know, that's cool. But the peanut butter, is it crunchy or creamy? Uh,
0: I do both, but more often creamy.
3: Yeah? Okay. I'm I'm the same way. Uh, we ask this one all the time. Do you like your eggs scrambled or otherwise?
0: On their own, scrambled. Mm-hmm. If there's anything else on the plate, probably poached. Poached? That's fancy. I don't think we've. I like the runny yolks. Yes,
3: that might be our first poached. I think that's our first. If there's
0: corned beef hash, I want a poached egg on top. Oh man, I love
3: a good corned beef hash. Yeah. Um, cheeseburgers. You like cheeseburgers? Love. Okay. Do lettuce, tomatoes, and onions belong on a cheeseburger? Just the onion. Just the onion. I could see that. That definitely. So lettuce and tomatoes, no place.
0: I don't disrespect you if you think they do, but um, uh, I think uh, you experience the cheese and the burger better with just onion.
3: Yeah. I mean, the tomato, it just disappears anyways. It just goes straight out of the burger. But
0: also, it's, makes it too, makes it too messy. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. you, you
3: take one bite, yeah. lettuce goes sideways, yeah. then it's yeah. on the plate, and then it's like you're having a salad with no salt. Um, pancakes, waffles, or French toast?
0: It French can't toast. be, it can't French be like, toast. Oh, yeah.
3: Wow. I just feel like people fuck French toast up so much.
0: Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I'm get assuming it. I'm talking to you. I'm assuming it's really, it's going to be good. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, I think our also, French we toast are pancakes and waffles the same thing, just like in a different, put through form. A different process. Yeah, I mean, th-
3: that's absolutely 100% <laughs> correct. But for some reason, I ask a lot of people, like, yeah, waffles are way better than pancakes. And I'm like, I don't, okay, whatever. It's fine.
0: They're more fun to make.
3: So, when you make a sandwich, do you cut it in half or on a slant?
0: Oh, diagonal. Why? <laughs> I just think it looks cooler. <laughs> I think it looks cooler. I love that.
3: Okay, this is a sixth question. And this is also like layered tacos. Do you like corn or flour tortilla? Oh, corn. Corn. Okay. I'm just saying, it's like you know, corn. Like, there's different types of corn tortillas. Like, when it's really, really good, it's amazing.
0: Again, I'm trusting
3: you. No, I know. To have, I'm not uh, making it though. I'm just saying in general, like well, when you go world, world, I'm okay, assuming
0: in your universe, I'm assuming it's going to be good.
3: Right. Uh, burritos,
0: wet or dry? What you mean? Just the you know, inside? like a wet. You
3: like a wet burrito? You know, like when they get the burrito, they and then they all the sauce on top with the cheese.
0: Oh, on top. I thought you meant like... No, no, no. Like on top,
3: like the whole thing, you got to eat it with a fork and knife.
0: Again, either, but uh, the more stuff, the merrier, you know? I'm a Taco Town. I have a Taco Town point of view for anyone who's ever seen that SNL video. No, I haven't. You haven't seen Taco Town? No. Taco Town's very good. (laughs) It's a classic. We're going to watch it as soon as we're off the air. Do
3: you enjoy a breakfast burrito?
0: Absolutely. I used to work in the film industry and that was my favorite thing to get from the catering truck at six in the morning. And I also used to smoke at that time. Yeah, so that's a the cigarette best after burrito. a coffee and a and a breakfast burrito was don't smoke kids. Yeah, it's but terrible a, for A you. cigarette at, at six and in the coffee. morning in Los on yeah. a Los Angeles uh parking lot after you've set up for the day. Heaven.
3: This has been our most successful lightning round of all
2: time. Perfect. For real? Yeah. What, a, what a pro Andrew is.
3: Yeah, how hard could it be? Well, you know, like usually I'm super unprepared, so I'm just <laughs> not because, of, the, not because, <laughs> not because, of, because of you at all, not
0: because of the guest either. It's were, always like you were so in uh, a car for seven hours. I thought and you was, had time I was. I thought fly. I was mildly combative. No, <laughs> no, I, no. I've had
3: way more. You need to meet Chris Hughesby after like five Ooh. drinks. That was Chris Honor bagel. He was calling me There's all kinds of There's yeah. footage. <laughs> he was calling me all kinds of names. Wow. <laughs> he called me. What did he call me? I don't remember. Your position de- was ridiculous, too. Huh?
2: You, what you were arguing was absurd. No. Why? We don't need to get into it. Ah, oh, not
1: doing this again. Not doing it
3: thanks so much for your dollar really appreciate it love. you know ads at Dade mag too that's great that's right yeah just give us all your money there it's great announcements and things coming up soon so keep an eye out for those things we're doing things soon I mean we need to okay <laughs> <laughs> that's good oh, that was great yeah
1: love, thank
0: love that thank you very much thank you it was super fun thank you Dave. oh here really
1: quick really uh, Thank you.